the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. My co-host this week is the one, the only, Alan Niven. Good day, Sir Alan. How are you? I'm extremely well, thank you, Mitch. And how are you doing? Good, good. I, I just spent... Uh, a weekend recently with the the wonderful boys of Poison down in Pennsylvania. So whenever I see some Poison, I'm good to go for for the next little bit because they really uh, they really deliver nothing but a good time, right? See, that's that's, that's tacky, right? But that's when you're talking yeah. when you're talking Poison. That's you know. But I love those guys. Um, today, 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 I have got a episode that shall make people's head spin from the wonderful journey. And Santana, his guitarist Neil Sean. Um, just quickly on on Neil, were you a, a fan of Santana back, 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 way back when? Uh, Santana to me are one of the absolutely magical bands of all time. Um, if I remember correctly, Neil joined them for the third album, which was a brilliant album, and and followed on well from the uh, extraordinary first two records. Uh, he was with the band when they made uh, Caravanserai, which I thought was an incredibly imaginative and brave artistic step. He is one of those who has eloquence and articulation. Um, in certain respects, I hold him in greater esteem as the guitar player of Santana than I do for Journey. Um, Santana, to me, were absolutely special and completely groundbreaking and his playing in santana was extraordinary really yeah. extraordinary it really is and, and and before i get to the other mentioning who the other guests are uh when you talk about guitarists and we do those top 10 lists and you know billboard does them and you know ultimate classic rock does them we always get Jimi hendrix and eddie van halen and randy rhodes and stuff but but Neil, for for the most part, gets left out or left out of the top ten, which I think is somewhat silly because I know that Journey is not necessarily a guitar band; it's more a big singles, "Don't Stop Believing" and lights and all that. But where do you sort of see him in terms of comparisons or you know ratings? I mean, he he does bring something exceptionally unique to whatever he touches. Uh, let me put it to you this way: um, I spent a magical afternoon and evening one time uh, watching Neil and Slash from GNR rehearse with uh, Simon and Paul Rogers from Free, Bad Company, whatever you want to call them. And to see them playing free material and bad company material and playing with articulation within that was a real treat. And I think if Neil gets the forgotten off list, it's because I think most people think of Journey as a pop, you know, a heavy pop right, band. Right, see, and that's a problem. But, well, the problem is lists. Uh, for me, guitar players are of the moment. And if they move me in the moment that I'm watching them, then that's all I'm going to ask. And Neil has got that capacity to really be emotionally expressive in, in how he plays, and he really is a, a very, very special player. 
Yeah, he really is. And uh, they came back in 2016 with Santana 4. Now, have you had a chance to hear that? Because it, it's it's Greg Raleigh and and Michael Shreve and Carlos and, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. Were you, did you have a chance to check that one out? Uh, not as yet. Um, I have to, I have to say there comes a point when I get a little nervous about reunions. Um, it's very hard to catch the youthful magic of a, of a very special band. Um, but you know, I'm looking for it. Well, you, I can agree that it's sometimes hard to, you know, capture lightning in a bottle twice, but I think there are some musicians, especially a guy like Neil or Slash, where they're above sometimes just the moment and they have that perspective where they can step back into their old skin and just deliver it the way because there's a realness to what they do. It wasn't just paint by numbers, we're going to have a single and it's 1987, you know. So. I don't know. I think Santana 4 was was a great album and certainly a, a return to form. And, and I'd like to see, you know, a five, a six and a lot more from from those guys. But what a great uh, what a great lineup. Um, before we, we get on to the interview with Neil, let me just uh, tell the folks we've also got Miles Kennedy of uh, Miles Kennedy or Slash and Miles. Ken- I don't even know why it's, that, that name's so difficult, but he's got a new solo album out called Year of the Tiger, and he's touring all through Europe and other places. And then Uli John Roth, another guitar hero god. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Uli later on, but were you a fan of Uli and, and his approach and, and that sort of wacky guitar that he's got going on? Well, I have to confess, there was a period of time when uh, uh, psychedelic guitar players um, I found very engaging. Um, I spent a couple of evenings in close proximity to Jerry Garcia at shows, watching him play and watching the walls melt. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed Uli at times. Uli's great. So before we get to Neil, let me just remind the folks that uh, Journey and Def Leppard are on tour Uh, Through the summer and into the fall, a a tour that I hope to catch, hopefully, uh, in August in Boston. But we'll see if that happens. But without further ado, here is the one, the only, guitarist extraordinaire, Neil Sean. We are speaking with Journey guitarist Neil Sean. Neil, absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. In fact, I don't think we've spoken since, boy, what was that album back in... Uh, 2005, Eye on You? Was that it? The, the oh, song. wow. Yeah, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, it's way overdue, Mitch. Yeah, and, and that was a great that was a great interview, actually. We, we did it backstage at the, where was it? The Bell Center in Montreal on a Journey show, I believe. I don't know who you were opening. Was that, a, was that with Styx? No, who was that with that show? That was a long time ago. I couldn't, I couldn't even tell you, man. It's but, like a big watch to me. I mean, we... You know, we play so often and all over the place. And so uh, if I usually see pictures and it all comes back to me where I'm at. But otherwise, it's a complete wash. I can't remember. Yeah. So so here's the thing that, about interviews with with guys that have had as much experience as you. It's it's sort of like for every question I ask you, there's like 25 that I'm going to miss. And, there's, and I'm going to get fans saying, oh, you didn't ask him about that. And it's like, well, yeah, but... You know, I don't have time for a thousand questions. So let's start with the easy stuff and sort of work our way from there. The band, of course, is currently on tour with Def Leppard. Some shows also have The Pretenders. Other shows have Cheap Trick. 
What a great package. Let, let's let's start with that. Between Journey and Def Leppard, you're you're easily looking at what thirty or forty top forty hits, something like that. Uh, there's been a lot of press out about it, but I just haven't read it. <laughs> We've had a lot of hits, and um, uh, you know, I'm actually pressing the guys. I said we have so many hits that we only have ninety minutes to play again, which is kind of ironic, you know. It's like I've been all over management for years that we need longer to play so we can play, you know, some deeper cuts. And now we here we are with 90 minutes again. Uh, and it's just the two bands, but on a stadium that is the three bands. And so, um, yeah, we have a lot of hits and uh, shows are going great. Uh, fans are, are loving it. And, and um, you know, it's been really awesome so far. I really like all the Leopard guys been a you know a long time since we all hooked up and uh you know i hung out with uh joe elliott in in new york uh when we did pre-tour pr for for the tour and we had a blast man they're just great guys and very straight up and no bs and so i love that yeah i love that too so so let's start then like, like i said i'll start with the really obvious stuff and then we'll work our stuff into into the deep the, the deep recesses of, of what you've done. But for, for a while there, uh, we didn't think that there was going to be a journey going into 2018. We all know about the public feud. Was that something that at this point you regret having gone public with it? Or did it sort of need to be aired out so that people could say, okay, we need to step back and reassess what's going on here? You know what? I, I uh, have uh, always broken it real, you know? And I can, I'm going to continue to do it if I need to do so. And, um, you know, at that point, I really was not getting much help from anyone. And so I, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to break it real to the audience, my fans, and our fans are the ones that I, care, I really care about. And I care about, of course, about everybody in the band. Uh, but I just didn't agree with what was going on and wasn't told about anything. And so, you know, I just, when, when I wasn't getting help from, from anywhere else, you know, I just said, I'm, I'm going to break it real. I'm going to stick it out there. And I don't regret it. Actually, I don't. I think we're sitting in a more positive place now because of it. D does, does a band, especially at your stature, you know, stadium shows, does everybody have to be friends? I mean, at some point it is the music business and you show up and you've got a job to do and that's just the way it is. And, 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 and if you're friends on the top of it, great. And if you're not, so what? Still got to play the show. Well, it makes for a better time, man. If you don't absolutely hate somebody you're on stage with, and, you know, I mean, you know, bands are bands, you know, we've been together a long time. You go through a lot of stuff um, with the same individuals sometimes give or take a couple that that you know uh things change along the way but um you know we've been together for a long time and you know things constantly change people's lives constantly change and so when you want to make it work you have to give and take a bit and and you've been here and there and that's for everyone you know it really is now uh, from that came this uh, concert that you did out in San Francisco, the uh, Neil Sean Journey Through Time, where you brought back Greg Raleigh, uh, Dean Castronovo, of course, who was with you in Journey for many, many years, and Marco Mendoza. 
going forward, is that something that you want to keep exploring? Do you want to take those three guys and, and maybe make an album or, or do some more shows? Or was it really just this one-off, let's explore, you know, Neil Sean's journey through time, and then that's it, that's all? No, actually, it's something that I've been talking to management about and the band about for, for many years now. And so I'm going to keep on exploring that and having fun with that when, when you know, the time uh, comes and I have, uh, you know, and I'm freed up. Uh, definitely I'm going to do some more shows. I'm going to do a record. I'd like to do a record with the journey I'm on tour with right now. But definitely I, I uh, had a blast playing with Dean and Greg and Marco and, and John Vaughn actually filling in on keys too. Um, we, we, in five days, we worked up like 33 songs and, um, uh, I think Dean remembered him better than everyone, which was, you know, amazing. He was, uh, singing and playing drums at the same time and held up amazingly well. And we played like over three hours and, um, wow. you know, and we played from our first record all the way up through frontiers and, you know, given the opportunity, I'd go all the way up to now, you know, and uh, a little bit of everything and kind of mix it up. You know, it's more of a, uh, a jam band uh, atmosphere, a festival type atmosphere, even though we happen to play in um, a small little, very nice little club in San Francisco. Um, a lot of the bigger venues were already, you know, booked up and um, already had benefits going on for, uh, you know, the fire victims. And so, um, you know, I, it was a good opportunity for me to reconnect with these guys and, and um, you know, have some fun and do it for a worthy cause. And I know everybody in the, the, the Bay Area up here and down in L.A., they're very happy about it, you know. Uh, plus, they were, you know, going, they were coming like unglued at the concert. You know, I mean, we played Of a Lifetime, which was um, a classic song for many years here in San Francisco, where it didn't matter who we played with, we killed them. You know, we were, um, you know, a Bay Area's favorite, even way, way back in the beginning. And so it was nice to, to you know, get in touch with the very beginning roots of, you know, the band uh, again that music and um you know i think everybody played it very well and um considering the amount of time we had to work on things five days is not a long time and especially for guys that you know like uh, marco uh dean was not on those early records but he's so photogenic you know in his mind once he listens to something and plays it he remembers it forever and so we're lucky there but um, it was a lot of fun, and, and yeah, I can. Uh, I am going to continue to move forward with that. And you know, my idea about it was basically to have a journey festival, um, a journey music festival, and and everyone should be invited. You know, I've talked to the guys that I'm out with right now. You know, Jonathan Ross, uh, Smith, and and Arnell, and I'd I'd want to open it up to where everybody is, you know, they're, they're welcome to come on stage and sit in in any part of it. I think that's what would be really, really classic. And, um, 
you know, it's in a different setting. It's not in a 90-minute setting. It's more in like a fish audience type setting or a dad setting, you know? In fact, let me take you up on that because Foreigner in August of this year are going to have all the surviving members on stage. It's going to be Lou. It's going to be uh, Dennis. It's going to be uh, Kelly. And they're going to do a show where everybody's going to be out there. So I think it's like nine or, or 12 people on stage. Is that something that you would like to see where you have a ticketed event and you know that Steve is going to come out for one song and you know that Greg is going to be there for three and you know that Dean will be there for four? I mean, that, that sounds well, like... Well, you know what? I think, I think more, more so than knowing that Greg's going to be there for three or John's going to be there for four or this, then it starts to get homogenized, okay? You're already, like, planning, and I, I'd like it to be more off the cuff, like whoever shows up can show up, and we can play anything, you know, to where we're well-rehearsed and we know everything, and so whoever wants to come and fit in can, and they just need to have it together. Yeah, and that, that would be great, and I, and I love that concept that Foreigner has. I, I, I'd love to see more bands from my... You know, the White Snakes and the Kisses and, and all those guys bring back people and have these shows and just say, OK, listen, time's passed. Let's let's just play these songs. Um, the last time you recorded with Greg Raleigh and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was on the Santana 4 album of 2016. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that album and getting into that state of mind, because at least to me, Santana is very, very different than Journey. What was that like going back? to Santana and getting your guitar mind back into sort of that more, I don't want to say jam kind of space, but just sort of a, a freer guitar space, less sort of have to be for the radio kind of space. Um, what was that like? And, and then, of course, of being there with It Carlos. was like, you know, honestly, God, it was like uh, falling off a bike and then getting back on it and riding it better than ever. You know, I come from that place. And so those are my roots. They're blues roots and they're jamming roots and, you know, very musical roots. You know, I listen to a lot of, you know, uh, progressive uh, jazz, Miles Davis, where where it's all what you hear, you know, not that much is written down or, or you know, in stone. And so um, the hardest thing to do, actually, for me is to concise it all and make it for a radio format. And, you know, lately the way the radio is, is uh, we have our hits and they're sitting there and nobody's jumping up and down to make more like that. And the radio stations are less and less, which is really sad and disturbing, but that's just the way it is right now uh, in the States anyway. So, um, you know, there's no reason not to open it up in my mind. So, And, so you know, playing with the guys in Santana, of course, you know, I love Carlos. Um, we've actually gotten tighter and closer as friends, as well as, you know, appreciating one another as musicians as the years have, have gone by. And, um, and, and same with Greg and the rest of the guys in the band, Michael Carvalho, Michael Shreve, you know, everybody else that's there. And that music is like something else because it's all based on rhythm. And um, we spent, you know, a few weeks uh, split up um, you know, for the first couple of years when we first got together and decided that we were going to 
you know, try to do a record when everybody's uh, schedule permitted. And um, we wrote a lot of stuff, some of which remained on the record. But a lot of this stuff, it was exactly like it was in the old days where Carlos is very, you know, like he's very spontaneous, like I am. And most everybody is in that band, in the Santana band, because that's the way he travels. You know, I mean, he's like, uh, he comes in and he goes, I've got this idea. And next thing you know, you're laying it down uh, half an hour later after you've discussed it and played around with it in the studio for a sec sort of pre-rehearsed it and and then you're recording it live um i i sort of i love that uh as opposed to sitting down with a computer as many people have done throughout the years now and um if this the journey you know that i'm out with right now if if we ever go in the studio again uh, i would not want to do a pre-calculated record that's pre-written uh, that's already been, you know, demoed in Pro Tools. I'd want to go sit in a room with these guys like we did when we made real records and uh, great records like Escape and Frontiers and everything before that. We were just well rehearsed. Um, I believe we made Escape for $60,000. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was it from top to end. And it, was, and it wasn't in somebody's house. Otherwise, it would have been cheaper. You know, we made it in a uh, fantasy studio uh, in Berkeley. And uh, we rehearsed in my old rehearsal place in, in Oakland. And we got a ship together. We just, like, played and arranged everything. And, you know, when I played a solo, I played a solo. When I played fills in between vocals, I played the fills live. And we rehearsed in a sense like we're going to go on stage and play live. So you're not thinking, okay, we got this, I'm going to have this big production on this song. We'll bring in all these strings and, you know, we'll play, lay down the rhythm first and then you go back and play the lead. No, it was just like play live, man. And, and that's what we did. And that's what we do the best because then, you know, it's pretty much you're creating together, all together uh, and not relying on a map. You know, right, right, right. Now, I, I do want to get to uh, the possibility of a new journey album, but before I get to that, I want to talk about the 1971 Santana album, which which many people refer to as Santana Three or simply Three. You uh, recently tweeted a picture of that era, uh, and of course, the last album, Santana Four, sort of signifies a, a, a continuation of what was being done there. What was it about that particular album that, that struck a chord with the public? I mean, it went up to number one on Billboard's uh, 200 album chart. Just take me back to that day, that those days. I mean, I know it's a long time ago, but what was it about that album that just people went, yeah, th th this is for me. I need to buy this. I need to have this. Uh, and how was it important... How important is it to you in what you've done over the years? Well, I mean, it's something that's, that's you know, can never be replaced for myself. Um, you know, I was in high school at the time. And, um, you know, luckily enough, I had, you know, met uh, one person in particular, uh, Jackie Villanueva, who was in the road crew uh, for the Santana band. And his brother, John, also that worked in the road crew and, I met him down in the peninsula when I was living with my folks in San Mateo area. 
uh, at Paul Curzio's studio. And uh, Santana had just recorded the, I don't know, I think first record there. And Jackie, you know, Jackie and I met and he says, man, I, I'd really like to, I think you're really good. And I'd like to take you up to the city and introduce you to a lot of the club owners and uh, get you, you know, circulating in the city. And so before you knew it, I was like heading out, I was like sneaking out of the folks house and, you know, heading up to the city where I said it was over like at a friend's house studying or something. And I'd be in San Francisco uh, at the Keystone corner. You know, I, he introduced me to Alvin Bishop, Michael Bloomfield's old place that Alvin took over when Michael passed. And, um, Alvin sort of took me under his wing as well. And so I would go jam with him like every Tuesday night it was a blues sit in night. And it was sort of like a guitar gun off and people would come in and, you know, uh, see who was like, you know, the hot, had the hottest blues shops at that time. And I kept on slaying people. So, you know, Alvin really took an interest in me and that from there, Alvin, you know, after playing with Alvin, uh, for a couple months, he goes, I got a treat for you tonight. He goes, I'm going to take you to the Fillmore West and we're going to meet BB King. And I'm going to take you on stage with myself, with BB. And so I was like, wow, you know? <laughs> and so we headed over there and we went backstage and sure enough, there was BB who I had studied as a kid, you know, when I was 12, uh, I started playing at 10. And, uh, so I, I really studied, you know, uh, B.B. and Albert King and uh, Buddy Guy and all, you know, uh, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Michael Bloomfield, too. I loved Michael's uh, blues playing. And, uh, you know, we, we, we met backstage and there was Bill Graham. So I met Bill Graham for the first time. And um, I believe I was like 14. And, um, you know, uh, B.B. called us up on stage. He was way like looking out at the audience, I was on the left side, Alvin was in the middle and BB was far on the right. And so we started playing and um, BB would play a couple notes, you know, and then he turned over and he'd look across the stage. Like, do I have anything to say, you know? <laughs> and so I play him back those same two notes, uh, sort of very much, uh, you know, not trying to, to showcase, but show him uh, respect that I had studied his vibrato and his touch on the guitar. And so I, I sort of did my best job of emulating him. Um, and he liked it. Got a big smile on his face. And we continued, you know, through the night like that and had a great night. And then I met up many times with B.B. after that, played with him. Then I met Albert King. We did, you know, a TV show together. Uh, with Journey in Chicago. And then every time he came through town, I'd go sit in and play with him. And so, um, you know, I met a lot of great people and and made some really great contacts that, that helped me get going. And so that first Santana record was critical for me and uh, as far as just getting out. And, you know, I didn't really know what my style of playing was going to sound like in Santana. Um, but when we listened back, everybody was really pleasantly surprised. You know, I was very fiery in those days and pretty much playing, you know, really sped up 
you know, hot blues licks that I'd like pocketed from my favorite guitarists at that time. You know, I mean, it was all the blues guys, but also, you know, uh, the English Invasion, you know, there was Jimi Hendrix, there was, you know, Jeff Back, there's Jimmy Page, or there Clapton, uh, you know, and so I sort of mixed every all those guys all in one, and and um, even when I jammed with Clapton the first time, um, he didn't know what he was hearing back, but he was actually hearing himself. And when he asked me, "Who do you listen to?" and I go, "Man, I actually listen to you," and he thought I was just full of shit, <laughs> and so. I was in his room after I played with him in Berkeley, uh, at Berkeley Community Theater, and he had an acoustic guitar. And so I picked it up and I showed him like note for note his solo off a of Crossroads and a couple other of his solos. And you know, he just gave me one of the greatest compliments in my life. And so, you know, uh, that was the hardest uh, deciding point for me. Is Clapton asked me to join Derek and the Dominoes, and then Santana asked me the next day. And, you know, I did go with Santana because I knew the guys had been hanging out with Greg Raleigh for a long time. He had been picking me up at high school and I'd go ditch, you know, school and go to his father had a, an apartment, uh, in, in uh, Burlingame and they had a piano there. And so we'd, we'd go over there and hang out and sort of jam just the two of us and got to know each other. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of notoriety out of that record. That record did go massively huge. I remember Clive Davis coming in the studio and he was just loving it. Uh, it was very fiery. It was, you know, rocking, but still had, you know, Latin influences and African uh, rhythms. And, uh, you know, it was just full of color. Lots of color, world color. Yeah, it really was. So, okay, so before I get to the a new journey album, let me ask you about that because it comes out in '71. By '73, you form Journey. What happens in those two years where you say, "Okay, this is not the place for me anymore. I need to go do my own thing. I need to be the leader of my own band." Well, it it, it wasn't uh, just myself or just Greg. It was the whole thing was kind of falling apart. At that point, um, you know, uh, Chapito was gone. Um, David Brown was gone at that time, uh, the bass player. Uh, Michael Carabello was gone. Uh, we were, you know, in the midst of doing uh, Caravan Sarai, and which was a, a huge departure from, you know, Santana 3. And it's, it's a great record. You know, I listened to it this day and I still love it musically, but you know, it wasn't quite where my head was at or where Greg's head was at or a lot of other guys either at that time. And so, um, Carlos was, you know, seriously wanted to go into a different direction. And so with that in mind, so did we. And so everybody kind of just went where they wanted to go at that point and and we um just commenced on our own journey you know right. no pun intended no pun intended <laughs> and and it's, it's sort of got to be hard to keep the the machine rolling because i mean abraxas is number one three is number one 
there has to be some pressure about, hey, is the next one going to be number one? Can you, can you, you know, cookie cutter and, and repeat what you, and so there's got to be pressure building at the same time around the band with like, you've got this success, you've got to maintain it, right? Yeah, which I don't think would have been hard to do um, with a band that, that was that great. Um, I think we could have, you know, used a lot of the same formula and still sounded different because like I said, you know, it, it all Santana music is, is hugely, you know, uh, Carlos's guitar his his melodic sense and his style that no one sounds like him. You know, Carlos has always sound like himself since day one. Uh, when I listen to him and same with Greg Raleigh, you know, you can always tell it's Greg playing B3 organ or singing. He's got a very recognizable voice, He's got a very recognizable uh, organ sound, especially in Santana. Uh, when you hear him playing, you know, with, with percussion and um, everything's based on rhythm and, you know, that band, when it gets going, it's like a giant locomotive that you can just not deny and you cannot stop that train. It's like, you know, full steam ahead. Obviously. And uh, so, so let me get to this, this idea of a new journey, Alan, because from one perspective, what one train of thought is you don't need a new album, your journey. You have all these hits. You put your name on the marquee. People want to hear love and touch and squeeze. And they want to hear lights. They want to hear, there's no need for it. Um, but as a creator, as an artist, is there a need for you to say, yeah, I've got 10 more songs in me? Yeah, I do. But I'm not really certain at this point with with, um, you know, Jonathan and Ross and Smith and everybody else and Arnell, if, you know, that we need. I, I agree with you. I don't know if we need another record, if we're going to make exactly the same type of record. You know, if we're not going to try to break any new ground or do something artistically that's new, then I, I think that we really don't need a new record. I think that it just continues as it is, as it's been for many years. And it's a greatest hits band. And once in a while, you know, I mean, the thing that's cool, always cool about the band is that everybody's very musical. And when we get to our live shows, we always have segues and um, everybody has separate solos that where you can, you know, I can change from night to night that I do. And the audience loves that, you know, uh, very few people go, Oh man, I hate all the solos. You know, you're always going to get one or two, but I'm not even certain that they're real. <laughs> you know, uh, when you look at, like, if you see something on Facebook and you look up who they are, it, it looks like they've, you know, don't even have a, a, a web. And just somebody that likes to, you know, stir. Right. And, um, uh, but, you know, I, I do want to travel into a new place uh, because I really feel that the younger audience that, that we've attained now through, you know, our music being in Glee, that they want to also go on a new place. And they haven't discovered a lot of the stuff that we even did before that. I mean, there's some gems that are on, you know, uh, we made uh, nine records, I believe, with Greg Raleigh. 
And there's some great gems on those records. I mean, Lights has turned in to being an anthem, a total anthem, where the audience sings every word, much like they do a lot of our songs, but Lights in particular is very loudly through the whole song to where some nights you can't even hear Arnell singing. They're singing so loud. And the whole place lights up, you know? And so it's an anthem, even though everybody goes, well, you know, Don't Stop Believing didn't make it in the top 50 or top 40, whatever it was when it first came out. And I go, yeah, it doesn't mean that it's not a hit, though. You know, there's so many different things that go along, as you know, you're in the business. And so there's a lot of politics, uh, whether it was payola in the old days or whatever it is you know, to get played on the radio, it's, it's much the same, only even steeper, you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and very much controlled, you know, more so now than ever, you don't have DJs, uh, that, that can do anything they want to do and play any kind of music that they want to play. And so in a very controlled, uh, environment and world music world, um, you know, I kind of want to, if I'm going to create something, I want to go outside of that and not really worry about it because there's not that much of it that exists anymore. You know, you have adult contemporary and, you know, you can push that stuff out all the time. And, um, and, and, and sure, it's nice to have a hit, but a real bona fide hit, I believe, are like the tracks that have lived through the years and survived, like Wheel in the Sky. Any way you want it happens to be our second biggest downloaded song next to Don't Stop Believing. When you look at the statue, okay? And I wrote that, you know, way back with Steve Perry uh, while we were on tour and opening up for Thin Lizzy. Good old Thin Lizzy. It goes way, way back. And these songs are hits, even though they didn't come across as just at the time when the record came out, maybe because at Columbia at that time didn't think they were a hit, so they didn't really push it. Now they've stood the test of time, and the new statistics are telling you that they are bona fide hit. Yeah, they really are. And and Journey's in that sort of place, like a lot of bands that have had a long career. You're in this damned if you do, damned if you don't place. If you do what you've described and go out artistically and try something new, fans are going to say, well, I don't hear faithfully. I don't hear another separate ways. But if you do something that sounds just like that, they're going to say, well, you copied the old, right? I mean, you, you can't win. So Yeah, <laughs> you can't, you know, everybody's got an opinion and that's okay, you know. But my, what I, what I kind of did with these guys in San Francisco uh, is I let them know that we can play anything and everything. And um, Definitely, you know, that's something I'm interested in for obvious reasons. You know, um, musically, it's very gratifying. Um, there's some ass-kicking music. You know, a lot of the, the first stuff that we did is just ballistic live. It always was when we played live, uh, even though we had no radio airplay or anything. But, you know, I, I believe... Uh, the younger generation, you know, that didn't get a chance to see uh, Led Zeppelin or Jeff Beck with Rod Stewart or uh, The Faces or 
the who or you know led zeppelin or Jimi hendrix you know they didn't get to see all that they want to experience that you know something close to that again and I guess that's why Santana 4 must have been refreshing because you did get a chance to do new music without all those expectations of, you know, he has to write another Don't Stop Believing. Or, so, you know, that that must have been uh, refreshing. It, now It was amazing, man. And really, it was kind of a bummer because I spent a lot of time. I was like sort of the one that pulled all that together and pulled all the old guys together. Um and it'd been a very long time since they'd all spoken to one another uh, or even thought about creating with one another again. Uh, and then it kind of, it, it came out and it was like pretty ballistic and we were just getting going. And then my whole concept about, um, you know, uh, wanting to do a, 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 a tour together and, you know, having different musicians go in and out of both bands that just, you know, went by the wayside because it was met with a lot of resistance. Um, not only from some band members, but, uh, management as well. And, you know, management was not into it. They, they said, you know, uh, you, you guys are not selling tickets. And frankly, I didn't really believe that. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, now, somebody that I've been speaking with over the last couple of months, exchanging emails with, is John Waite, good old singer from yeah. uh, Bad English and, of course, The Babies and Solo. You were supposed to do, or you had it had been mentioned in the press that you were going to do a, I guess it was a blues kind of album or some kind of trio together. Uh, is that something that you still want to do? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think that... that um, you know, John was going to come out actually and sit in with the journey through time in San Francisco. And I was like, wow, this is going to be really cool. Cause then we can play. Um, we, 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 we ended up playing a couple of Santana tunes because it was just, it wasn't even planned. We just went into it and the audience came unglued. And so they're hearing like this whole long, you know, repertoire of journey songs from the beginning through, you know, frontiers. And then we go into like a black magic woman or Oya Komova and the place comes unglued. Once I thought, well, at that point, if weight comes on and he's never sounded better, you know, I felt, uh, in, you know, all the clips I've seen of him lately, I think he's in better voice than he's ever been. And he's always been great, but he sounds really, really strong right now. And, um, so I was, I was, uh, disappointed uh, when he got offered another show, but I think somebody, you know, our biggest mistake is, you know, I think that, that it goes out on the media and we talk about it. And then people that have higher powers on the inside sort of veer us away from one another, whether they frighten him away or whatever. It's like that, you know, it's kind of like a political thing. But um, I felt like if John came on stage, and we did a couple of Zap tunes and we did a couple of bad English songs. Forget about it. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I would love to see bad English get back together and do some new music or at least some shows. And I, and I spoke to John about it and he gave me a very, very precise reason as to why that'll never happen. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. But for you though, is that why? something? Why are you going to leave it at that? <laughs> 
that aside, is that something that you would be interested in? And, and does it have to be the quote-unquote original members of Bad English? Can you not get Greg Raleigh? I don't Raleigh think it and... would be bad. I'm more interested actually doing, um, uh, you know, a, a, a really rocking blues record with weight, more so than another Bad English record. And, you know, it, it can be Dean, it can be like anybody, you know? Um, but really, I think the force that's there is John and I get each other, you know? I think Bad English was Bad English. That was then, this is now, you know? Um, my head is not so uh, wrapped in, we had some great songs. My favorite stuff was not the stuff that went big for the band, you know? Like when I see you smile, uh, like Diane Warren, she's an incredible uh, hit songwriter. You know, I can't even count how many hits she's had. And she wrote that tune. And I was like, okay, well, this is probably going to be a hit. And that's probably the reason I'm not jumping up and down about it. Because I always like the other material that's not necessarily a hit. You know, I like Rockin' Horse and I like the tougher side of the band. Um, stuff that I could really dig into. And, um, you know, John and I had spoken a lot, wait, about, you know, stuff that we could do. And I started sending him ideas. And it was very much coming from a more of a place like, uh, I would say, like, when when Jeff Beck came out with Truth and, you know, it was Ron Wood on bass and Jeff Beck on guitar, of course, and Rod Stewart singing, you know, all those songs on that record were like, like really bluesy, but really like, you know, they were like just greasy, man. <laughs> Sleazy, greasy, cool, you know? And, you know, rocking in a very, very hard way, but really raw. And so we were talking about, you know, correlating on something like that. And I'm definitely interested in doing something like that with John. Uh, I, I would love to hear it. By, by the way, just I'm just looking at, at your discography, and you look at the stuff you did with Bad English and the hits and, and the journey and, and the number one albums with Santana and, and Hot Sherry with Hardline and just an incredible – I mean, everything you have touched has turned to gold. Did you ever think of maybe becoming a producer, or, or did anybody approach you and say, Neil, you've got, you've got an ear for this stuff – produce our album and come and show us how you do it. Well, I, I definitely feel that if I wanted to do that and switch gears that I could right now, but right now, you know, uh, with, with the record industry in a place that it's at, uh, most people that are making records, they can't afford a producer. You know what I mean? I don't want to work for free. Uh, if I'm producing someone else, I definitely could do that. But, uh, I'm, I'm feel like I'm not done producing myself. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I still, uh, need to get out. You know, I've not really done a proper blues record. I want to do that. I think Wade would be a good guy to do it with. I've also been talking to Jimmy Barnes, you know, Jimmy, uh, you know, I met from Australia, John, uh, King. Yeah. And he's a monster. Oh singer. yeah. He still oh, is. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, um, very good friends with, uh, Kevin Shirley, the producer. And, and so Kevin and I are talking all the time and we're trying to see, you know, when our schedules, you know, line up, 
so we can do something or other, you know, uh, uh, Kevin is even going, well, if nobody's available, why don't we just go in and you cut a blues record and we'll figure out who's going to sing on it later. And I go, okay, well, I'm open to that too, but it goes back to the thing, you know, that I believe that when you make magic with people, because you, you, you have uh, musical chemistry, magical chemistry, I think you need to be in the same room with them and, and not a computer. Okay. You get the same homogenized thing from a computer every time. Um, it might sound like a, you know, a real polished, great record, well-produced, but anybody can do it. You know, when, when, when you sit in a room with real musicians and they bounce off of one another, that's where you come up with truly innovative uh, music. But even back in the 80s and 90s, nobody came to you and said, hey, you'd be a, a great choice or that's that's never that conversation has never come up. I did. Um, I'm trying to think of the band's name. I, I produced a band. Um, I had like three weeks off from a tour and Clyde Davis approached me uh, to. Oh, the band's name was Witness and they were from Atlanta. Uh, and. They had a, a girl singer, female singer. Was she was actually very amazing. Sounded a lot like a female version of, of Steve Perry. Uh, very soulful, real strong pipes, uh, high end, low end. She could sing anywhere. And um, the band was a rocking band. And so Clive uh, asked me to produce a record for them, and I got involved in it, um, which I only had three weeks to do, and I. I, I felt like I got the best out of them that I could get out of them and, you know, played on a couple tracks uh, myself and, you know, got the best I could out of them in the studio. And I thought it was a, a strong record. Well, then it comes time. Three weeks is up and my time's up and I got to go back out on tour. And, you know, I've never worked uh, with Clive as a producer but it was funny, you know, I sent in the record and I said, here it is, you know. Well, then apparently it goes to him and then they go into a conference room and he has like a 10 to 15 producers, you know, other producers that sit around this table and they scrutinize what you've done. And they all write down notes. They write you a book full of notes of what they'd like to see happen. And so that's, that's what happened is I got back a book of, of all the things that they'd like me to do to it. And I go, guys, I, I, I'm, I'm working. I got to go on tour. So, you know, I don't have the kind of time to sit there and do something like that. Surely I, I do. I know that I have the ability at this point to pick certain musicians and put them together Um you know, I was like when I found Arnell when he first came in, you know, over a decade ago. Um, I heard him. I heard him for, you know, five minutes. And I listened to him doing some Survivor song, which the story is now, you know, it's getting homogenized that the band found him. And, you know, and from going on sites and listening to Journey cover singers, that's not it. You know, it's like, I don't know where this is coming from, but that's not the story, you know. I listened to everything but Journey that he had done when I found his, his vocals. And I found that he was like, he was a freaking chameleon. There was nothing that he couldn't sing at that point. 
And then I stumbled that he did do, you know, faithfully. And I listened to it and I go, um, that's like unbelievable that he can do that. And then he can sing, you know, he could do Zeppelin. He could do uh, uh, Aerosmith. He could do Sting. He was like all over the map. He could do Nat King Cole, for Christ's sake. And I was like, this, I've never heard anything like it, you know? And actually somebody that was so convincing. Um, and, and so rather than emulating, I, I felt like he was just a chameleon of a singer. So anyway, when I, when I heard him, I knew that he had the goods, that he could do what we were looking for. Um, and, um, you know, I was met with a lot of resistance all the way around. Uh, you know, Jonathan was not 100% sold. Uh, he was like, uh, he probably doesn't even speak English. He's in the Philippines, man. You're crazy. Management told me the same thing. And I said, I'm telling you guys, this, this is, uh, he's the ticket. And he can do it for us. And, and you know, he can, he can do a good enough representation of, of, you know, our songs that have been done so well on record by, by Steve Perry, you know, and how many people can do that? Not many. But and, it was, it was know, an incredible risk though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, so, you know, I mean, I still feel like there's only one Steve Perry, even though I haven't heard him sing in years, I'm dying for him to put out his own record, you know, and, and I'd, I'd love to correlate with him on something that's different than Journey, something more R&B, because I love playing soul and R&B and blues, and that's something a lot of people don't really know, um, because I've been doing all these rock records, uh, but I have another side to me, which, you know, some are going to find out through this record I, I just completed a while ago with uh, Narada Michael Walden. And he actually produced me, and I have a solo record coming out. Um, you know, it's been ready since we started touring, but I thought, you know, John's got his book out there and he's releasing one record after another. And I'm like, I'm just going to wait until we're done and I'm going to put it out uh, maybe at the beginning of next year, you know? Oh, okay. So I didn't know about that solo record. So now is that, that so you said, uh, you know, probably February, March of, of 2019. Is that with you on vocal? Is it completely instrumental? Is it full of special guests? What what, what are we? No, it's it's actually it's it was uh, it's there's no vocals. My guitar is the vocal. That is the voice, and he produced the hell out of me uh, as a guitarist. I I was kind of like uh, I've never worked with a producer like that before, especially on an instrumental uh, record, um, and. There's a lot of melody, you know, a lot of beautiful melody. And Narda wrote, he wrote all the material. Um, he produced it. He played, plays phenomenal drums, but he played all the instruments. When I walked in, you know, I mean, he played the keyboards. He had, you know, synthetic uh, keyboard bass on it. And which, you know, we replaced with his bass player, Buddha. And, um, but the rest of it is just really him and I, you know, um, I asked him, you know, I've known him for years. I always respected him as a producer and he's been all over the map. You know I mean? I met him years ago 
when Journey, in the very early days, pre-Steve Perry, we opened up a number of dates for my Vishnu orchestra. And uh, at the time, Narda was playing drums with John McLaughlin. And um, he was a phenomenal drummer. He still is. Uh, but then later he became a very big producer, you know, for Clive and many other people with, with you know, Mariah Carey, uh, Whitney Houston, and, you know, so many other great artists, Aretha Franklin. Um, and so he's very soulful. Uh, uh, I asked him to write me a couple songs, right? And so I'm thinking, okay, he'll give me a call like in another few months and probably have a couple songs for me. And like five days later, he called me and said, okay, I have like um, seven or eight songs, Neil. You want to come down to the studio and check them out? I'm like, what? You know, I'm going like, he just like wrote them off the top of his head. And I went in and I listened to the stuff and I was like, come on, man. You didn't just write all that. And I go, you must have had it. It must have been on the shelf. must have been something that you wrote for Jeff Beck. And he kind of shelved it on you. And he goes, no, honest to God, I just wrote this stuff. And so after being around him and seeing how prolific and quickly he works in the studio, um, it was kind of mind boggling. And I just decided to humble myself, you know, in front of him and let him get out of me what he thought was my best performance. And so that literally took me just to sit in a chair, right? And do nothing but listen, not argue about this and that. No, I don't agree with that. No, just listen and um, play his melodies as uh, soulfully as I could. And then really, you know, um, rip when I could, you know. And so I think now that it's done and I'm listening to it, it it's uh, it's an amazing record and it's um, it's got you know, blues in it. It's very melodic, but it's, it's very like soulful. It's, it's uh, symphonic. There's strings, there's real strings on it. And so I definitely want to play some dates with Narda when this record comes out next year. And we're talking about playing some theaters and some, you know, different main cities and possibly using uh, some of the string sections from those cities. Oh wow, that would that would be great. Now, I, we're we're approaching an hour, and I just I have a couple more questions if that's okay. Uh, I, I I want to talk about the different singers you've had over the years, but I want to specifically look at the album Through the Fire with uh, Hager, Sean, Arison, and Shreve, or a what is it H S A S H S A S yeah yeah which came out in '84. It is. A fantastic, fantastic record. In fact, I have a CD copy right here behind me that I that I got on remaster like two years ago. Um, was that just a one-off project? You know, the, conceptually, this was going to be just one and done, or was this a band that was going to move forward and then for some reason it just didn't? Um, and is that something that you'd like to explore again at some point? Because that is, that is, I mean, listen, it's, it's top of the rock, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a great album. Well, you know what? It's funny, Mitch, this, this, just like I was talking to you about, um, Sammy and I had known each other for a long time. And, you know, we always, I always would go jam with him when he was doing solo shows. And I'd play like a Montrose song, like Rock Candy, 
or something with him. And, and we continued to be great friends all through the years. And then, you know, it came a time where I had another three weeks available, much like all the early records I did with Jan Hammer. We did those in two weeks or one week. You know, I have like three weeks off. Sammy had three weeks off. We went into my studio again that was in Oakland that I took over from Larry Graham. Uh, and um, we sat in there. I, I handpicked everybody, you know, Kenny Aronson. I'd seen him play with Billy Squire and thought he was a very, very strong rock bass player with a very cool pocket and where he, you know, played all his notes and very, you know, dictative and, you know, you know, sort of plays very strong time without drums. Uh, Michael Shereen, you know, Sammy would probably go, uh, he's not the guy, Sammy was like, I would have picked a different drummer, you know, but I liked what Michael did because he's always been very musical and he sort of, you know, took it in a little different place with that's what I was looking for instead of it being like heavy, heavy metal. It was still heavy, but he had some, you know, the classic jazzy chops that, you know, Santana band loved so much. And um, I thought made it more interesting, but literally we, we wrote all that stuff. Nothing was prepared. We wrote everything on the spot, Sammy and I, uh, for two and a half weeks. We rehearsed it all, some of which never even made it on the record. Uh, there's like a live show on MTV somewhere, probably all over YouTube, where you can hear the other tracks that we did. Um, but we, we didn't have time to go in the studio and make a record. Uh, so we just, you know, rehearsed the play live, made the stuff up as it came out, uh, and then rehearsed to play live all this new stuff, which was harder to do, actually, than just writing material, you know. Because when you're writing material, a lot of times you're not that far from a studio. And when you get it down and you rehearsed it, Usually everybody just lays it down when it's fresh in their head. So now you got to, we're thinking, okay, we're going to record live. And so we only recorded two shows. One was at uh, Marin Civic Center across the way from where I, I live uh, in San Rafael. And the other one was in San Jose. Well, San Jose ended up being the better show. So we used all those live tracks from that show. Uh, and then, Sammy was like, okay, I'm done, man. You go in the studio and, and, and produce it. <laughs> and so I went in and, um, you know, spent the rest of my time off working on stuff in there. And, you know, I did do some overdubs, like some rhythm guitars, tried to produce a couple tracks um, that weren't, you know, really sounding. They sounded great, but they were just were not that full and didn't sound completely like a record to me at that point, you know, the rawness was there. And so I did overdub some rhythm guitars, uh, a couple of violin guitars, uh, like Brian May type style or Infinity style um, on a couple of songs. But that was it, you know, and just sort of, you know, mixed it to where it sounded live in the right way to me. Well, hey, with all those with all those extra shows lying around, I smell, I sense a a deluxe edition uh, uh, coming out soon, <laughs> right? It'd, it'd be well, what? then we did the Planet Us. We did the Planet Us thing. In the beginning, it was just 
It was Dean Casanova, myself, Sammy, and Michael Anthony. And we did two songs that were like just insane sounding. Um, and then this was before Sammy went back in to Van Halen for the last time. Um, and, all, you know, all of a sudden there was stuff all over MTV. Uh, and then Sammy was talking like we should get another guitarist uh, just to sound fuller. And, you know, I said, well, what about Slash? Slash would be great. And so Slash was the first choice. And I was talking to him for a while about doing it. But then he had so much going on. That kind of never came together. Uh, then we talked about, you know, Satriani, Joe Satriani, who was also a good friend of mine for years. And I said, yeah, that's great, too. And then, you know, it all kind of blew up and nothing went anywhere. I think Sammy put out a couple of the tracks on a couple of his, uh, you know, box sets uh, that were reboxed and remastered um but definitely you know sammy can still sing you know every once in a while he'll call me like at three o'clock in the afternoon and i'll be watching like a baseball game or something and he'll go hey man skin can you come down here in my studio he's got a studio over in uh backside of san rafael and he's like you know i'm, I'm here with michael anthony and uh chad you know from chili peppers and we're gonna cut going down and I go, oh, thanks for the notice, Sam. <laughs> and so I stopped by Bananas at large, a local music store my friend Alan Rosen runs. And I, and I pick up a Marshall head and I take a Strat down there and I go in the studio and we plug in and we play like one, two texts. I said, okay, see you later. <laughs> and that was like, you know, what they released on his last record. He, he put going down on it. And it was a pretty ballistic version, you know. Uh, Chad and Michael Anthony are very, very strong rhythm section. And Sammy always sounds tremendous. I like Sammy because he's just no BS and he's very, very fast and easy and no problem to work with. You know what I mean? He's like, let's, let's just do it now. You know, there's not like, let's think about it. You know, give you, he never has you, you never have to deal with like, yeah, let's sit down and contemplate this. No, you know, rock and roll is really not meant to be contemplated. And the guys that really play it well and where it comes off that well, it's just made up on the spot. Yeah, Sam, Sammy seems very um, stress-free in life. <laughs> from from, from what is. I, yeah. And of course, some of those Planet Us songs, if I'm not mistaken, ended up on the Generations album, right? Um, I think so. I think they. I think some of them were, or or was it the so, no, Soul, no, actually, Soul Circus? No, no, no. Yeah, Soul Circus. I ended up right. uh, doing a couple of the songs, right? And, and um, yeah, that was a good band too for the time. Um, uh, we just, you know, it it was a crazy time for all. Really was, and good times for all. And I'll, I'll just finish on this since we are past an hour, and and I'm sure we all have. Other things that we that we want to attend to, but uh, you've worked with a we lot. We can always of... do show number two, Mitch. Too. We'll do. We'll do. Yeah, I'd love to do a number two, uh, but I'll finish. I'll finish just on this real quick. A, a quick uh, quote on on the following because you've worked with these exceptional vocalists, whether it's Jeff Scott Soto on the Soul Circus or Sammy on the H 
S A S. I don't know why I can't say that. Uh, John Waite with Bad English, uh, Johnny Gioelli. Uh, but just just quickly talk to me about Steve Perry and, and Arnold Pinella in terms of what they've brought to you in your life. Because Steve gave you, well, didn't give you a career, but he he was very a big part of it. And Arnold is, has uh, Arnell, I should say, has been a you know just your luck with having these great vocalists. I mean, you you've never worked with a bad vocalist, which is exceptional. Um, well, one thing's for sure, you know, and like my wife, Mikel is always going, you should sing, you got a great voice. And I go, honey, when you work with the amazing singers I've worked with, you know, I might have an okay voice. I don't have a great voice and I don't want to sing because they're too good. <laughs> and I'm used to working with somebody that good, you know, Steve Perry, you know, Oh my God. You know, I, I go back and I listen to everything we've ever done. And, you know, he's an amazing, amazing singer. And the thing about Steve is that he really gave us a different sound um, than I ever thought that we would have, you know, as he brought the R&B and the soul into Journey. In some tracks, you can really hear it like separate ways, um, uh, you know, Actually, all of his his rhythm sense for phrasing, it's all, you know, from older soul singers like Sam Cooke, um, you know, um, just older school soul singers. And he was a drummer that sang. So, you know, once again, man, another drummer, a singing drummer, uh, Dean also gets it. Uh, he's, he's not Steve Perry, you know. On, on vocals, but he's got an amazing voice and he keeps aspiring to get better. Um, I haven't heard him write songs yet, but he gets where you sit with the phrasing, how you make things move. I watched, you know, Steve Perry work in the studio. And at the time, you know, like I said, we would play live. We weren't playing to a click track to make sure everybody's in time or playing with a computer uh, to make sure everything's perfect. You know, the time kind of went all over the place and like it does naturally. And as long as it feels good, it doesn't matter. But I remember Perry going, Oh, we got a great track here. The second verse though, is slowed down. It's a little slower than the first verse, you know, but he goes, watch what I'm going to do. And so he goes, I'll fix it. And he goes in the studio and sure enough, he would know, how if the, the track is a little slower, then he's going to sing in front of it a little bit to make it feel like it's moving forward faster. And so he, he had like a, a tremendous, amazing sense about all that that I had no clue about until I watched him do it. And then you watch him do it and, and you go, oh, I get it. You know, um, Arnell has, has the ability... I don't know if you've heard what I did. I did um, for uh, uh, Rock Against Trafficking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. Album, that compilation record. Yeah, yeah. We did like a new version of Synchronicity too, and you know, Arnell came in. He sang that. Yeah, I, I had just cut the track in the studio with, you know, I basically built a drum beat from a keyboard at the right tempo, just a, a snare and a kick, nothing fancy. And I laid down all the guitar. And at the time it was just the, the exact version of the police 
uh, except I, you know, changed the solo section in the middle. So we'd go on more of a, you know, a little excursion uh, that was a little different from the record. Um, but at that point, I played bass on it. I played with the rhythm machine and played rhythm guitar. I played the lead man. Arnold came in and he sang it like in one take and they did like absolutely no fixing, no tuning, no mixing, uh, fixing. And then after I heard it, I go, man, I want to lengthen this a little bit more. I hear it being like more something like live, live and let die and orchestrating it. Uh, so, you know, Gary Miller, the producer for the project as a keyboardist and I'm sure guitarist as well. he, you know, went to work on that and, you know, sent it back to me just recently, the longer version. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. But Arnell, you know, he, he is quite an amazing performer. Um, he's been really great. I mean, you know, it's a tall order, big shoes to fill every year and not easy. You know, he's been there longer now than any vocalist has ever been with us. And he's having to recreate uh, and sing those hits every night, which is not easy. Um, even, you know, in the heyday uh, of the 80s uh, with the old band, with Steve, I remember we, we never played, I don't believe we played longer than an hour and 10 minutes. That was it. Wow. Short shows back in the day. And, and... Short shows and the songs were fast. Yeah. Everything was sped up unbelievably. Well, there we go. So, you know what? We're we're at an hour and ten minutes. So we'll we'll think of this as a as an eighties journey show, <laughs> and we'll we'll do a part two as an encore. How does that How does that sound? Because sounds great, man. So much not covered. There's so much more in the Santana story. There's of course the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's there, there's just a, a lot more. Uh, just a great great thank you, and I'm I'm uh, hoping. To come down to to see a, a Journey Def Leppard show uh, in in August, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that I can get the schedule worked out because uh, I, ha- I I can't miss that. I just I can't, you know. It's... Okay, well, great. I look forward to seeing you again, man. It's yeah. been a while. Yep. And uh, the shows keep getting better and better, so you should see a great show if you ever do come down. The one I want to see, and I'll and I'll explain why just real quick before we hang up is. August 11th in Boston at Fenway Park, because in 1980, on August 11th, I saw Cheap Trick for the very, very first time in my life at the Montreal Forum. And it would be this sort of geeky 38th anniversary of me seeing Cheap Trick again. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, and that's the kind of music geek I am. I want to put a nice bow on that circle, you know. So uh, yeah, we go way back with Cheap Trick, too. Yeah. Uh, when I record was, you know, we, we were like really huge in Chicago. Um, so big, like after Infinity and um, Evolution came out, we were playing like outside by the pier with Cheap Trick and they were from Chicago too. And, you know, we go back that far and they, they figured that there would be like 20,000 people. Well, it ended up that we had to get in and out from a boat you know uh, from a little like tiny it was wasn't a river but it was like this little boatway into a pier and when i was up on stage i remember looking out and they said there was 150,000 people in the streets 
uh, you know, not in the actual concert venue, but in the streets listening. It was crazy. And we had a lot of great times in Chicago and we're looking forward to playing, um, you know, uh, baseball field there. Yeah. That, that is just going to be, that's going to be, yeah. That's going to be a spectacular show. You know what? I'm I'm going to make that happen. I'm going to come down to that. That is, that is my uh, my prime objective. I turn fifty in August. It'll be my present to myself. Awesome. All right, Mitch. Thank you, sir. We will do a part two uh, shortly, and uh, just great, great time uh, chatting with you. And always, always a pleasure. And thank you for all the music over the years, uh, soundtrack of my life, and God, how many millions of other people's lives, right? So thank you. Thank you, man. Um, it's great talking to you again. Yeah. Cheers. Okay, bye, Mitch. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a very, very big thank you to uh, Neil Sean for that 75-minute uh, interview. Normally, that would be enough for one show, but not here at Rock Talk. We love to give you more. And so let's get over to Miles Kennedy, his uh, new album that came out Earlier this year is called Year of the Tiger, and later this year, he will have a second new album out, but this time it'll be with Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, new album called Living the Dream, and then there will be a Slash tour that comes really right above his Miles Kennedy solo tour. Um, Mr. Nevin, welcome back. Hi, Mitch. Yes. Great interview with Neil Sean. Yeah, Neil, Neil was fantastic. And, and that was, by the way, just part one. There's actually going to be a part two coming up. But uh, Excellent. Miles um, Kennedy, talk, talk to me a, l- a little bit about Miles. He, of course, works with, well, I don't want to say your boy because that sounds terrible, but you know what I mean. He was somebody that you've known for many years with Slash. Um, what do you think of the, of the work he's been doing on that side and then stepping out and doing this acoustic record that really pays tribute to his father and his very, very much sonically different than what he's done with um, Alter Bridge and Slash? Well, I've probably as usual, I'd, I probably have a slightly offbeat perspective on all this right. in that um, I think the most magical things that I've seen Miles do with Slash have been acoustic. Um, I, they play incredibly well and there's a great dynamic and there's an intimacy that comes across when those two are doing acoustic together that's really, really powerful. The other thing I think is this. I think Miles has got an incredible sense of patience um, in that, you know, I've obviously been and seen him perform with, with Slash a number of times. And my heart goes out to him because he has to sing all those old G&R songs and be patient and go through all those. Um, my hope is that with the tour that's coming up now that, you know, Velvet Roses or GNR or whatever you want to call them have been out there for 18 months, that he and Slash can concentrate on the material that they've done together and, you know, just leave all that GNR stuff aside or maybe throw one or two into, a, you know, an encore or something, but really concentrate on the material they've done together and, and, and let Miles get into the headspace of connecting entirely with material that he's written. I think, I think that would, would be a good thing. And I think it would be a, you know, a service for miles. And I think he's done incredible yeoman's work to perform all those 
GNR songs and people demanded them. Now, now let's give it a rest. Let's find out what Miles and, and Slash have, have done together. You see, and, and you are a great, uh, what's the word, predictor or prognosticator, because I actually asked Miles about that. I said to him, hey, now that GNR is out there and the fans are satiated with hearing Welcome to the Jungle, do you now just concentrate on, you know, the Miles and Slash stuff? And he gave me an answer, and I will let fans wait and hear that. But, yeah, I, I find that an interesting point, too, because listen back four, five, six years ago, there was no place to see Slash on guitar doing Welcome and doing, you know, It's So Easy, and so you had to have that thrown into the set list. Fans demanded it. But now, I don't know. I, I yeah, think let's, you're right. Let's make, yeah, I mean, if, if, if it were, if my observation and opinion were asked for, if I were connected to uh, that band, I'd be looking at them and going, you know what, guys? Let's let's leave the GNR stuff on the shelf and and let's make it about this band that's on stage right now. But let's find out what he says. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. And and I'll I'll even add to the same point. You know, you don't want uh, Slash and the band uh, doing Alter Bridge songs or Creed songs for that matter. So why would you focus on the GNR stuff now that GNR as GNR exists, that marketplace is, is, is filled. It, it, it doesn't need an extra band. So let's, yes, let's get over to miles and listen to that. And of course, do check out his latest album year of the tiger, uh, dedicated to his father. Here is the one, the only miles Kennedy. We are speaking with singer miles Kennedy, the uh, new solo album that came out, in fact, uh, earlier this year in March is called Year of the Tiger. Um, Miles, always, always a pleasure. The last time we spoke was at Heavy Montreal, and I think we, we were talking about cosmic dust or something like that. So, pleasure <laughs> to talk to you again. It's good to talk with you as well. Yeah, so let me get into this album, Year of the Tiger. Um, very much a personal uh, album about your father, Talk to me about the concept about it and and getting so um, what's the word for it? Just getting really deep and involved lyrically and musically and telling the story that is so so personal. Yeah, I mean it was um, it was it was, an, it was an interesting process because I think that um, once I finally took the plunge and decided to touch on uh, subject matter that was this heavy. Um, and once I discovered that I had a lot of things revolving around it that I, that I wanted to, to deal with, uh, from a song standpoint, so much so that it ended up essentially becoming a concept record. Um, I don't think I realized how much of a challenge it was going to be, but nor did I realize how cathartic it would be in the end. So, so I'm, I'm glad I went through that. You know, it's, it's, um, it all revolves around the loss of my father when I was about four years old. My father was a was a Christian scientist and and um, didn't believe in seeking medical attention. He was he was he was pretty sick, and I don't think he realized how ill he was. And he ended up passing away. Um, so the record essentially touches on that of that situation and then touches on what my mother and my little brother and I, um, kind of the journey we embarked on and how we started over and, um, you know, began a new life, um, without, without my dad. And so, so not only does it touch on my father's passing, but it also touches on you know, the strength that, that my mother had and, and kind of picking up and, and, and starting over and, and, 
so it's a tribute to her as well. Yeah, and and talk to me about about it being cathartic because I know you mentioned that. Is did you have this sort of weight on your on your heart for all these years, and it, you just felt good to get it out, or was it just a story that you wanted to relate to the fan base and say, hey, you know what? I've gone through this. Maybe you've gone through something like this in your life. And let's sort of connect on that level. Perhaps a little bit of both. I mean, I think that, that as a songwriter, that is something that, that you come to realize is that thing, if it comes from an honest place, a place that you understand, if it resonates with you, it will generally resonate with other people and provide a certain catharsis in their life as well, or, or some, or something, something positive, hopefully. Um, but but I will say that this was something there were there were things in this record that I wanted to touch on for years as a songwriter, but never really felt like it was the appropriate time or, or couldn't or there were walls I couldn't quite uh, budge through. Um, like I can remember as long as 15 years ago, sitting down to try and write something touching on this and I just couldn't get through it. I mean, it was just it was too difficult at the time. And, um, for whatever reason, uh, the universe was kind of instructing me that it was, it was time. And, uh, once that happened, I couldn't turn off the faucet and they just, songs were just coming very quickly. They really were. Now, now, now talk to me about the process because you started the album seven or eight years ago and you had these collection of songs that were very cluttered. So filled and, and you decided to say, okay, we're going to strip this back and start over. Was it, uh, talk to me about sort of that, that process where you got, where you just said, okay, this has gotten too stuffy. We need to, to, to break it down and start again. Yeah. I mean, what happened with the first solo record was I had written a record, gone in and recorded it, but a lot of time had passed since most of it had been completed. And, and I mean, I think around seven years had passed since I tr- actually tracked it in 2009. And when it was looking like I was going to make a, have a, have a window to promote this quote unquote solo record, I listened to it with, with fresh ears and a fresh perspective. And I had to be honest with myself and I felt like shelf life of a lot of the songs had just expired. It just didn't, it didn't feel relevant to me anymore. And I knew that if I was going to go out and promote it and talk about it, I, I wanted to feel, feel positive and feel, um, you know, feel like this was the, my best step, first step forward with a solo venture. And so, and I just didn't, I just had to be honest with myself and played it for a few people who I trusted and they, they agreed with me that maybe I should consider starting over. And so I did, I scrapped all those songs with the exception of one, there's a song called love can only heal, which ended up making this record. I just re-recorded it, but, uh, and it was also congruent with the, with the theme of this record, of the year of the tiger record. But, uh, other than that, everything is new. Everything, uh, I start, I started writing in late 2016 and finished it up in the middle of last year of 2017. Um, talk to me about the musical direction, because when when people think Miles Kennedy so um, they they think, well, look at what he's done with Alter Bridge, look at what he's done with Slash. This is going to be this slamming hard rock and record. It is not that. Was that um, a difficult decision to say, okay, I'm going to give them something, give the fans something completely different musically, or does Miles Kennedy, the solo artist, have to do something different than Alter Bridge and Slash? Well, I, yeah, I think I felt, 
I did feel like it needed to be different. I felt like to to do something that was more of the same would just dilute uh, those other two entities, um, especially where I'm where I sing with those. So if I created music that was similar to to Alter Bridge or to the SMKC material, it would just be redundant. Um, but the, for me, one of the really big uh, draws of approaching it. Uh, the way I did was this was music from a genre standpoint that I've always loved. I love acoustic based music. I love um, uh, music that's rooted in, in, in uh, very American influence influences from the, from the blues country blues um, and, you know, so on and so forth. And I thought it would be really interesting to, to write a batch of songs in that vein. And, um, and it really, it was really liberating. I mean, it was, it was something that as I was doing it, sure. I was concerned how it might be received because it was so different, but I, I kept telling myself, you know what, do this for you. This is a, this is, you, you have to be, um, I, I think you just, you have to, you have to just kind of throw any fear out the window of what people might think about this and just do this for you. And, and, um, you know, let the chips kind of fall where they, where they may. And, uh, and in the end it, it ended up exceeding my expectations tenfold. I was, I was really shocked with how, um, people took to it and embraced it, uh, because it was so different. And it really, that was, that was, a, that was a definitely icing on the cake for me because not only did I get to make something that I'd always wanted to do musically that was very fulfilling, but then, it, you know, it, seem to resonate in people's lives. And, and, uh, yeah. and so that was, that was something that uh, was real special for me. Yeah. And rewarding. So, so is that sort of where you want to go in the future and have sort of these three different outlets for your music slash uh, alter bridge and the solo thing, or was the fact that it took, you know, essentially nine years to get it out or get a solo album out. Do you step back and go, okay, I got it done. And now I go focus on my other two. Well, yeah, I, I think that. I'm definitely now that this has been recorded and, and I'm in the middle of touring, you know, it kind of, in a way, it kind of, kind of uh, clears the palette. And so it gets me ready to step back in the role of being, um, going, going, going to more guitar, heavy guitar driven material, which I'm excited about. But at the same time, I know that in a few years, I'm going to want to come back and revisit this, this approach and this, um, this new kind of branch of the tree that has, has recently, um, you know, grown off the main, main, main musical trunk, so to speak. So, um, I think that, uh, I will definitely be doing more of this in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely not a, a one and done. Um, let me let's look forward here in 2019. You have in the past, including with me in an interview, talked about how Alter Bridge was going to do an album for 2019. You were going to move forward. And then, of course, now Slash and Guns N' Roses seems to be winding down for 2019, and there's that opportunity. You've also got the Slash tour coming up with uh, Living the Dream. Uh, that's in September. How do you sort of see your 2019 shaping up? Where where does the commitment go? Is it Do you divide it sort of 50-50? Does, does AB take, a, take first row? I mean, what is, where are we sort of going for, you know, the next 18 months? Um, it's a good question. I think that, um, you know, there's, AB is definitely making a record early spring of next year. 
Um, and then we plan to start touring later in the year. So in, in between all of that, uh, there's talk of, of putting, uh, tours in with, with slash and conspirators. So, uh, all that's still being kind of worked through and, and, and negotiated. So we'll see how it plays out, but I, I can assure you there will definitely be a, a more Alter Bridge music next year. That's great. So, so let me just quickly take a couple of seconds on the slash. Not, not too long, but you do have Living the Dream um, coming out. Uh, talk to me about when that album was recorded. There was a lot of talk that it was done sort of over the Christmas break, somewhere December, January. And then you've got these tour dates that start on September 13th, which basically is going to go in between some of your Miles Kennedy dates. Um, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you're going to you're going to go one yeah. day, one day to Phoenix with Miles and one day wherever with, with Slash. Um, talk to me about that album and, and where did it sort of come from? It was sort of this well-kept secret. And then, boom, there's an announcement. Yeah, well, it was something, you know, a lot of those songs had been around for a few years. Um, you know, a, a number of those tracks, I remember kind of the genesis of, 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 of the track happening, you know, we were at Soundcheck um, as far back as 2015. Um, so it was kind of unfinished business, you know, the idea of needing to document some of those tunes. And I knew the guys were down uh, in LA jamming off and on. Um, but there was, it was, it was hard because with everybody's schedules, knowing exactly when things were going to be completed um, was somewhat of a challenge. And it got to the point where people would ask me in, in interviews, you know, when, what's happening for SMKC? And I just said, I would start essentially um, just expressing the time will tell, you know, we'll see how this plays out with the schedules, you know, it's just kind of a slow chipping away process, but there was no point in, in giving uh, any sort of specific dates because I don't think any of us knew what the specific dates were going to be. So once I knew that the tracks were, pretty much completed from a musical standpoint. Um, I went down in April of this year and tracked my vocals, which was, I think about two weeks in the middle of April. And, uh, but obviously once you're tracking vocals, you know, that the, the record's going to happen. So, um, so then there was talk of, you know, the release and touring and, and all that. So it became more of a, a realized vision at that point. Yeah, and it and it's a great vision, and I really can't uh, wait to hear it. I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, I do want to ask about vocally because when I listen to an AB album or I listen to a Slash album, uh, or a Year of the Tiger for that matter, I find that you approach it uh, vocally differently. Is that just sort of my ears playing tricks on me, or do you try to, or specifically, you know? How can I put put a voice for each different project, if if that makes sense? It does make sense, and I, I think that a lot of it depends on this this sonic canvas that I'm singing over. So if I'm if I'm playing well, with with uh, Alter Bridge, a lot of times the the vo- and and with Slash the Conspirators, it tend, the vocals tend to be in a higher part of my register to kind of cut through the the. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on, and especially when you add high gain guitars, it changed. It totally changes the kind of the the where you your voice is going to cut through. So you have to sing appropriately. Going to Year of the Tiger because it wasn't um, uh, the, the guitar arrangements were very different, and a lot of it was acoustic based. 
it allowed me the luxury of singing in a lower part of my register and and uh, not having to kind of hit, hit put hit the gas quite as quite as hard. And it was about emoting a little differently and and a little more subtly. So. So yeah, your your ears are are not playing tricks on you. I definitely definitely approach those differently. Uh, now speaking about approaching things differently, uh, these Miles Kennedy dates that are coming up here in Europe and then later on in North America, uh, what can fans expect? Is it sort of just Year of the Tiger all the way through? Are we are we throwing in some slash stuff? Are we throwing in some A B stuff? What can the folks in the United Kingdom, Germany, and all the other countries you're going to hit? What can they expect? Uh, it's, it's essentially, uh, well, the first, the first run was, um, I tried to split it up evenly. So it was, it was where you do like four songs from, from AB, four, four to six songs from Alter Bridge, um, then maybe three songs from, from Slash Conspirators, and then the rest would be Mayfield Four or, or, you know, the Year of the Tiger tracks. But as the year progresses now and people have had more time to live with the record, uh, with the solo record, I'm going to, I'm going to pull more songs from that. And I'm also going to integrate, um, more of a band element. Yeah, originally it was just me and an acoustic guitar on these next two, uh, tour or on this next tour that I'm, I'm embarking on. I'm going to be doing, you know, some acoustic stuff all by myself. And I'll probably still play a few of those songs from my back catalog, but, but then I'm going to bring the band out and we're going to play as many songs from you the tiger as we can. And, uh, and it should be fun. I'm excited. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, so I'll, I'll go back to the uh, Slash dates here for a second. Uh, of course, when Slash went out with you in the past and with Brent and Todd, there were a few Guns N' Roses songs thrown into the mix. Now, of course, GNR has gone and, and dominated the world, blah, blah, blah. And you're now onto your third or fourth album with Slash. Do those shows now just focus on the solo stuff and maybe some A-B stuff and leave the GNR for GNR? We haven't had that discussion. I, I would assume it's going to weigh heavily on the, uh, early, well, the, the, the material will lean heavily on this, on the, uh, SMKC records. You know, obviously we, this will, this is our third one, uh, fourth one, including his, 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 solo, his first solo record. So yeah, I, I think that it's going to be dominated by, by our own material and maybe, maybe a few covers here and there. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. And just, uh, I know we're, we're sort of short on time mostly because we've got other interviews coming up, but um, it, it, Slash going back to GNR was very exciting for the fan base. And I've had this discussion numerous times with Alan Niven about how he is playing better than ever. Uh, from your perspective, where you've had to have him play in your band uh, or the band, what do you see in terms of Slash's playing over the last few years? Uh, he really has sort of hit a new level, correct? I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I noticed it when we started playing together, you know, seven years ago. Um, I always knew he was a great guitar player, but I, I, there were things that he would do. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were approaches he would take, which I hadn't heard him use 20 years prior to that. And um, it really does feel to me like he's continuing to evolve. I think the thing that amazes me about his playing is his ability to improvise and not be redundant with his solos. So back when we were we would tour on on the last record, there would be these extended solo breaks, say on a song. There's a song called Anastasia, and there would be an outro where he'd he'd play for a long time and 
rarely would he repeat himself. You know, night after night, he was always coming up with new ideas. So uh, to me, that's the sign of a really talented artist is, is, is continuing to have a wealth of, of ideas and that the well never really seems to run dry. So just regurgitating the same few licks over and over again. So that's, yeah, he's definitely, he's, he's, he's definitely an incredible guitar player. Yeah. And he's, and he's, I, I think he's hit strides that he hasn't hit ever. I mean, he's, he's at the top of his game. And of course I don't want to forget Mark Tremonti, another brilliant guitarist. Uh, just quickly talk to me about working with Mark and also would you see yourself doing a project outside of Alterbridge, just you and Mark, uh, whether it's an acoustic thing or a metal thing? Would you want to just work on some kind of Mark and Miles project, an M&M kind of thing? M&M, I like it. Um, I mean, anything's possible. I think that right now, given how many different projects we're, we're already all juggling, it would be that would certainly be a, quite a challenge. But, uh, you know, I'm up for anything, so... You know, M M&M, I like it. Right? I mean, you, you had Cosmic Dust before you had M&M. Why not? Uh, Miles, a, a great, great pleasure. I wish we could have done an hour, but uh, time constraints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time, Ash. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. And uh, please, uh, let's let's do one again soon, and let, let's talk about all these great projects. Thank you, sir. Sounds great. You take care. Cheers now. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. And a very big thank you to Miles Kennedy for updating us on all things Miles. And uh, there you go. He he answered your, your question there and, and my question about the GNR and does do they keep doing that with the Slash show. So I thought it was a, a fabulous, fabulous um, answer. Uh, somewhat noncommittal, but still a fabulous answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, let's get over to our next guitar god, for the lack of a better word, Uli John Roth. He is, of course, on the Triple Anniversary World Tour 2018, giving you highlights of Tokyo Tapes, Electric Sun, and uh, Metamorphoses of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Uh, just a great, great spectacle, but delayed for North America because immigration would not let him in in time so he's had to take the tour that was planned for may june and throw it to end of october november so there you go but uh uli john roth sir when you look at guitarists out there to me he's an artist artist he you know the scorpions were starting to hit big tokyo tapes ended up being a huge live album and he didn't stick around he said nope I'm going to go do Electric Sun. I'm going to just go do this, you know, uh, experimental guitar stuff. Uh, how, how do you sort of judge Uli in the grand scheme of things? Well, you know, you've got to bear in mind that Tokyo Tapes was basically the record that broke the Scorpions open. And I think you have to give Uli incredible credit in that he looked at what was developing and made a very clear and conscious decision of whether it was right for him as a guitar player and an artist. And he decided that he wanted to follow his own muse and well done for doing it. Um, he is an extraordinary player um, in a sense, a little bit of old school in that I, you know, I consider players like that very much the late sixties, early seventies vibe. Um, but I, I like players like that. I like players who are in the moment 
and spontaneous and don't play the same thing exactly the same way twice. Um, and one thing that you can say about, you know, the successful Scorpions lineups is that they are utterly consistent in their excellence, but consistent in what they play. And that was not Uli's vibe. No, not at all. And and, and you're right about the fact that they, he plays the songs differently because they have a song called Your Light. And every time I talk to him, I say, why don't you play Your Light live? And he says, you know what? We've rehearsed it. We've tried it. I just can't find that sound live. I can't, I can't make it work live. And, you know, it's not a super complicated song, but as an artist, he needs to deliver it in, in such a way. And his artistic mind, just it's not hearing it. And it's, it's interesting. And he also, you know, during the interview, he talks about why he went off and did his own thing. And he said, you know, he couldn't write about chasing skirts and drinking. He said that wasn't his thing. So, you know, a lot of respect to him. Um, recently, also, I was talking to Dave Mustaine of the one and only Megadeth, and he was talking about Uli and saying how great Uli was. And this song, The Sales of Chiron, or Sharon, came up. Um, and we talk about that with Uli as well. What do you think of that song? Because that, that's one of those that a lot of heavy metal guitarists quote as being this great, great, great rift. I mean, Kirk Hammett quotes it, and Dave Mustaine quotes it, and others. And yet, you know, it's 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 sort of almost a religious song. The fact that it's a that it's a spiritual song um, doesn't make it a bad riff. Of course it, not. You know, it's. I, I, I think the point that I'm getting to with Uli is that obviously he was somebody, and you just nailed it in terms of the content of what uh, Scorpions uh, focused on for their success. Um, Uli's a little bit of a, an astral cowboy. You know, he's, he's very much um, more of the spiritual state of mind than the material state of mind. And... Um, I don't think it's bad that you know any heavy metal band or heavy or any any heavy metal uh, uh, player uh, connects with that vibe. No, I, I don't think so either. And of course, he is a great study of uh, Jimi Hendrix. He's he's a huge huge fan. And you and I have differed on our opinions of Jimi, but at the end of the day, uh, I think when you can. Uh, survive in people's imaginations like Jimmy has for 50 or 60 years now, I guess. Uh, you've obviously done something right. Uh, well, when we're talking about Jimmy, I mean, there's Jimmy and then there's everybody else. Um, the, the most extraordinary player that I've ever heard um, with the most unpredictable imagination and just amazing soul and heart. Um, and Obviously, I think Jimmy was a you know a big influence on Uli. Totally, and in fact, uh, Monica Deniman, who was uh, Uli's girlfriend and 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 of course Jimmy's girlfriend, uh, she helped compose the song "Will Burn the Sky" for the uh, Scorpions, and that is one of their all-time all-time greatest hits. Uh, not by 1980 standards, you know, it's no Rocky like a hurricane, but in terms of the global catalog, you don't get much better than "Will Burn the Sky." Right. Yeah. So there we go. So shall we listen to Uli? Let, let's see what, what Herr Uli has to say, and uh, let's hope he gets into the country. Um, with the way things are going between certain nations at the moment, it's a little discouraging to hear that people are having visa problems, but it's predictable. 
It is. And, you know, when they start talking about uh, aluminum and steel and cars and they say tariffs, you know, my eyes sort of glaze over. But if they ever say they're, in, they're putting tariffs on rock bands, oh, I'll be the first, out, the first one out there protesting. Uh, but here we go. Here is the one, the only guitarist extraordinaire. And that makes two guitarist extraordinaires on this uh, episode. Uli John Roth. We are speaking with guitarist Uli John Roth. Uh, 2018, of course, being a great year for Uli. A lot of great highlights for you. You have the 50th anniversary of your first ever stage performance from 1968, the first 40th anniversary of The Birth of Electric Sun, and then, of course, some uh, Scorpions Tokyo tape stuff. Uh, Uli, always, always a great pleasure to uh, to talk to you. Hey, Mitch. Uh, pleasure is mine. Yeah, so... Let's talk about all that stuff, but first, I know that mm -hmm. you have this site, sky-guitars.com, and you wanted to mention that, so so let's talk about the Sky Guitar first. Um, talk to me about sort of the genesis of having your own guitar and why you didn't just go to Gibson or to Jackson or, or you know, talk to me about these Sky Guitars and how they became sort of identifiable to you and what this new uh, website is. Well, originally, uh, when I first started out the, with the Sky Guitars, that was in the very early 80s. It was basically an extension of the um, Fender Stratocaster, although very looking quite different. But what I wanted was kind of like a super Strat, so to speak, you know, a Strat that could play higher and uh, could do things that the normal Strat couldn't do. And uh, that's how all that got started, you know. That's uh, how the shape evolved. And then first we had all these higher frets and octaves. And then very soon afterwards, the one of the uh, Sky Guitar prototypes in the 80s became the first ever um, seven-string, and um, certainly among the modern electric guitars, you know. So we've been, and then we developed our own pickup called uh, Mega Wing, um, Mega Wing system. It's uh, really um, more than just a, a pickup. Uh, it's uh, quite a battle station, that thing. And um, it gives me like all sorts of range and tonal range on, on the guitar uh, to do things that, that I couldn't with, with a standard guitar, you know. Well, um, at some point, um, my good friend um, Elliot Rubinson from Dean Guitars um, kind of persuaded me to put the Sky Guitar on the on the market, you know, because uh, it it was basically just always my guitar and very personal to me, to me, and um, so I wasn't really so keen on that at first, but then. Other people had copied it illegally, and, and, and he made a very good point. He said, uh, he, you know, you can do new research, you can build new Sky Guitars exactly to your specs. So that's what we did. Um, we put uh, made a limited edition of uh, Sky Guitars, um, uh, sold about uh, 50 um, with these, and they were all hand-built in Germany, but uh, under the umbrella of Dean. Um, and they were great guitars, and I was very happy. Now, unfortunately, um, Elliot died last year um, in February, and that was a great loss because he was also not only one of my very best friends, and uh, um, but he was even also my bass player on, on a lot of tours. You know, we had a lot of things in common, and um, so. 
since our series of uh, Sky Guitars had come to an end anyways with 50, I thought to myself, you know, um, he was the reason I was with Dean, and without him, I uh, thought, uh, you know, it's time to move on. So I founded my own little um, company called UJR Sky Guitars. And we're basically um, using this, the same builder, my guy in Germany, Boris Dominjay, who handcrafts everything, and um, we're we're selling them via word of mouth at the moment, and, and they're they're going very well. Yeah. Um, but uh, because they, it takes a while to to build them, you know, there's there's a waiting list. And yeah, that website is is not online yet, but will be very soon. We're almost finished with We're it. We're almost done now. Are are the guitar built? Are the guitars built to the specs of a fan? Can a fan or, or or a musician, you know, or Kurt Hammett, phone you up and say, "I need you to do this and that to the pickups," or are they built to your specifications and sold? As oh, they you... are built. They're built to mine. Uh, they really are perfectly for my my needs, tailor made for me. But we've got quite a few different models. You know, there are some even without a whammy bar. So. And they and they do come with different specs, different scale lengths. People can also choose their colors, and some people like the neck scalloped, some don't. These things we can, um, you know, we can arrange. But uh, like the the essential and basic things, like uh, the shape, the the pickups, etc. No, that's non-negotiable because otherwise it wouldn't be skaters anymore. Right. Okay. So, so now let's talk about yeah, because they are. You know, I don't want to tamper with certain things that took so long to get up to that point, and then you know why throw it away on the whim? You know. So if somebody wants that kind of sound and that kind of playability and and that kind of level of what these guitars can do, they they gotta go with the Sky guitar. <laughs> they they gotta go with the original Sky. So now. Yes. Speaking of original, we were originally supposed to do this interview uh, in person in Ottawa as part of your North American tour, and it got postponed. Um, yeah, talk, right. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about the challenges of touring, especially in North America in 2018, because back in the day, it seemed you just sort of hopped on a plane, showed up in New York, went to a bar, plugged in and played. Now we've got visas and taxes and um, talk to me a little bit about the challenges of well, getting here. Um, the, uh, you're right. Um, in the olden days, meaning like the 80s, it, it was very easy for anybody um, like myself to get a, a work visa for the States because we do need a work visa regardless um, of, you know, as soon as we plug in a guitar, I guess, somewhere in, on some stage, even if we're not being paid, and, uh, I, I understand that we do need these uh, work visas. Now, that's all fine, um, but it used to be easy. I used to have indefinite um, visas in the early days to come to the States. Uh, sometime in the early 2000s, it became more difficult, you know, that more questions were being asked, whether that's to do with 9-11, maybe, I don't know. But it became more com- cumbersome, and by now the process of getting um, an L1 work visa is like basically a nightmare. It's unbelievable. You have to experience it to, <laughs> to um, you know, to know what I'm talking about. It's like out of all proportion and it seems like the process seems 
cumbersome and also, dare I say, it's very inefficient because every year they're asking exactly the same questions and tons of them, like in, in my case, you know, my last 15 years of travel. And I sent them like virtually every single journey I've done, which was like 1,500 entries, you know. Um, the the paperwork alone is substantial, and you have to play it completely by the book. So there's a lot of red tape, and if something isn't quite right, then thank you, that's it. Now with us, um, everything was we played everything by the right by the by the book. Um, you also have to hire attorneys, which for younger bands, um, immigration attorneys can be a deal breaker because, like in our case. Uh, each year it costs around $10,000 with expediting charges, the attorney fees, musicians' union fees, etc., etc., etc. For uh, smaller bands, uh, that is like a huge hurdle, you know. And um, so you, you, you pay the, this money, and then in the end you're um, kind of um, in, a, in a waiting loop, you know. Um, now, in the last few years, it's gotten harder even. And uh, the problem is also nobody ever tells you anything. And with my visa, for three or four years ago, there, there was a technical something not quite right. And at the embassy, they couldn't tell me what it was. They said it needs to be referred to back to Washington. And then as another hold up. And that happened like every year now, like clockwork. Um, nobody knows to, seems to know the answer. Then when when... Yeah, we even um, um, applied for Freedom of Information Act kind of thing to tell us the reason. But the problem is that apparently there's a two-year waiting list on that, you know. So anyways, to cut a very – oh, yeah, and there's some a lot of artists or, or other professionals now who don't make it to the finishing line. That means basically they're applying for a visa maybe half a year before – and then by the time they need the visa for the date, like for us, um, we have to book these concerts in up, up front because otherwise we cannot apply for a visa. So um, then we give them a date, and then suddenly uh, the, the visa doesn't arrive for that date, meaning the whole exercise is, is pointless. And so um, quite a few bands don't just make it. They, they can't play, you know. And this happens. Uh, this is happening increasingly, and apparently, particularly this year, I have. I mean, I'm, I don't really know, but it seems because um, uh, President Trump asked for extra vetting last year. Um, they're vetting each visa application like much harder, meaning it takes much longer. But they didn't provide any extra manpower. So probably the State Department is kind of hopelessly um, overworked with this. And basically the people who are trying to get into the country um, to do a job are at the receiving end of it. And that's why our visa did not come on time. And um, we had to eventually then postpone the tour. And having said that, the day after we made the postponement announcement, um, we got word that the visa is going to be issued <laughs> within so, 12 hours. So the, so In the last two years, I, re I got my visa literally on the day before my flight. Um, it was, it's nerve-wracking. 
And of course, a lot of um, is riding on something like that because you have like thousands and thousands of fans in, on a tour in America like that, 10,000 plus people buying advance tickets from 40-something promoters and in all the different states. So all these people in America basically have to change their schedule. A lot of them had already booked flights to Vegas, flights even from Japan, from Hawaii, flights, hotels, um, because the tour is supposed to happen then. And uh, then you have a big bus company in America. We you know, have to hire a huge tour bus each year. Um, costing thousands of dollars. And basically, so the economy in America, most of the money that's generated on a tour like that, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars, most of it stays in America. You know, we t- because the overhead is huge, we take very little actually home to, to Europe, and our crew is American. So it's um, basically the, uh, the administration is kind of shooting... Um, the, itself or the, the, the small country, business, right? But by by being like this, you know, I don't understand it. So it's very frustrating. The good the good news is that uh, we do now have um, this visa, and uh, we're rescheduling um, virtually all the gigs, which were forty something gigs, um, towards October and um, and November. And um, hopefully we can make all of the, the Canadian gigs because we had quite a few this time, you know, including Alberta, Winnipeg, and uh, quite a few places that we've never been to. I was really looking forward to that. Yeah, and of course, coming back to Montreal and, and Ottawa. Uh, Ottawa, Toronto, those and Quebec, Quebec, those were the stalwarts that we always used to do, you know, but this time we went... You know, we have all these other shows um, booked other, other than those, you know. Yeah, so so, so let, let's talk about, because it was the triple anniversary, or it is the triple anniversary world tour. Um, first of all, talk to me about the length of the show. You know, I, I just went to see Foreigner and Whitesnake. They both did an hour set, and then boom, they were done. Uh, you know, you're out there doing three hours. At some point, do you not want to just sort of show up and do... You know the greatest hits and and fifty five minutes and say thank you goodbye. Why sort of put yourself through a three hour show? That's well, that's... you know, it's not quite as bad as it sounds. First no, of it all, sounds great. By the way, it sounds great. First of all, Frank Marino is worse, and he's Canadian. He plays longer shows than I do. You know, so um, but um, we're not really doing three hours. There's an intermission in between. You know, and what what we're doing is we'll do a one and a half hour set dedicated to nothing but pure electric sun music because electric sun in the in uh, our heyday in the eighties was we had quite a following in America, and we did um, we uh, played to a lot of people there, and that music hasn't been heard since then, apart from the occasional song maybe. So, um, you know, a lot of um, fans have been asking for this, and, and now we're actually doing it. So basically we're doing a best of Electric Sun, and uh, then we have an intermission, and then we will do some more. We will, um, we will also do some of the Tokyo tapes, but it's not going to be 
two times one and a half hours. That that would be too much, you know. Without the intermission, and everybody can can have a breather. And we will try to keep also the support act to a minimum because sometimes I find in some of the clubs in America they're overdoing it. You have too many bands up front, and then you know the audience is a little. Um, you know, we're we're weary. Well, I'll tell you, but, uh, that's a big um, complaint for me as a fan. I go to some of these shows, and they're not shows. They're they're mini festivals where you have five opening bands, and you're like, ugh. But, and then the, the main band is way too late in the evening, and it's not good for anybody. People have to work. So we're trying to uh, keep that to a minimum. The, the, the problem is that this is not our doing. The um, uh, Most of the time, some of the promoters um, insist on having several support acts because these support acts basically bring in extra tickets. They have to sell tickets. They're basically buy-ons for Well, they for, are. For the promoters, so they sell extra beer, extra tickets, and I guess it's a financial consideration. But it uh, very often it doesn't make for a good concert, you know, because um, I mean there are some places that lumber us with four bands, and you're right, it's mini festival. And the problem is that a lot of the bands uh, that you get to hear are not the ones that you necessarily want to hear, you know. It's like you're going to a movie and then you have like nothing but commercials up front. (laughs) Every once in a while, of course, there are some great support bands, you know, but some of them uh, shouldn't really uh, be up there on that stage um, in a concert like this. I agree. um, I've always had a problem with that in in the American um, touring system. Uh, But there's... Um, in some cases, there's little we can do. Some promoters just really insist on it. But most of the time, we make a point and say, please, keep that to a minimum, you know, for everybody's sanity's sake. <laughs> yeah, and see, I agree with that. I was out at a, a show in June for a sort of an 80 melodic rock band, and they had put all these openers that were like this black death metal, and I was like, what are you Sex doing? problem, yeah, very often it doesn't fit <laughs> musically, you know. Fit. And um, don't get me wrong, I'm totally supportive of young musicians, and they should have places to play. Uh, that's extremely important, and I understand that something like that can be very helpful. But um, there is um, there is also such a thing as common sense, you and know, and balance and a fine line. So, yeah, so... I mean, there needs to be a balance, and and sometimes there, there isn't. So, <laughs> so, so talk to me about Electric Sun, because here you are in 1978, you leave the Scorpions, and instead of going off and doing Uli John Roth's solo guy, it, it sort of becomes a band situation, or, or, or it certainly appeared to be a band situation. Uh, talk to me about forming that after leaving the Scorpions and, and deciding, okay, we're going to give this a band name and we're going to move on as Electric Sun. Yeah, um, you know, I didn't really see myself, like, having come from the Scorpions, I, I was, yes, I was the lead guitar player, but I never saw myself as a solo artist as such. Although, so I thought it was only natural um, to to give a band name to Electric Sun, you know. Um, but um, to all, <clears throat> in, in reality, it was very much a solo uh, kind of thing, because I wrote all the music, and um, I... I bore the main brunt of the the show like a front man um so um i guess it could have been called uli john ross from the beginning but i i never 
did think about that until the moment when we signed with EMI for the third album, Beyond the Astro Skies. And they said, look, um, we insist you call this Uli John Roth and you, you're a solo artist and it should be uh, named as such, you know. And at first I kind of didn't really agree with that, but then I saw that, that they were actually right. And um, so I think that that album then was a hybrid. I think that it said Electric Sun, but it also said my name. And from then on, afterwards, I've I've just always been a solo artist, you know. And I guess <laughs> that's that's what I turned out to be, you know. I never saw myself as a frontman. I, I don't think actually I am a frontman. I just play, and I I don't see myself as an entertainer either. Uh, a good frontman should be an entertainer, you know, I guess. Yep. And um, sometimes I have my moments, you know, on stage I can be funny or witty, but um, it's unpredictable, you know, and a good entertainer really reels that off night after night. It's part of their psychology, and I've I've never been really, uh, <laughs> you know, it, I've never been of that mindset. Right. I, well, too much. I I just want to keep it real and not really program my my emotions. You know. You see, and that's what I want to ask you about because, as you know, I'm a I'm a huge Scorpions fan, but I have to say they do sort of do corporate rock, and they were aiming for the Billboard charts, and they were aiming for MTV. You never approach music <laughs> that way. You sort of approach music in a more pure artistic form. Um, just if you can talk to me about how you see music, should it be a product that we sell via billboard and, and MTV or how do you sort of see music? Is it, is there a more pure, uh, form of what you do? Well, you know, it really depends on, um, your point of view and on each person. Um, if you're asking me directly, which you just did, um, I have very clear views on that, but um, I, at the same time, I see, you know, the people in the world, uh, most people are not musicians. Most people love, most people do love music or at least like music or they relate to music. And that's absolutely great. Um, so being a musician, I cannot expect the, um, the public, the, the, the wider bulk of people to be on the same level of, of oral, um, you know, of, of, of hearing abilities as, as myself or a professional musician, you know. In fact, when I first started out listening to the Beatles, I remember I mainly just heard the vocals and the guitar, and, and only later my hearing became three-dimensional and I was able to hear everything, um, and then even more than that. So... Um, basically, the, the public has a very different perception, and um, a lot of quote-unquote commercial music is in, basically in tune with, with that perception. And uh, a lot of writers who, who, know write, who, who, write like, who know how to write like that also have a similar taste to, to what the public likes. You know, so basically, and a lot of that is entertainment. You know, if we're going from background music to dance music, um, although it can also be highbrow, even classical or more melodic um, pop music or like the Beatles, 
that's one world, you know. But for myself, um, I've always seen music like something out of this world, you know. To me, it's always been... I'm I'm deeply in love with music, and I'm I'm deeply in love with um, the the metaphysics of music. You know, I see other things in music, not just a song or a melody. I'm 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 always, I was always fascinated fascinated by what's behind these things and where all this is coming from and how it relates to us and how we relate to music. And so, to me. Um, I have so much respect for music. It's almost something holy, something something sacred. That's why um, I find it difficult to relate to music that is really just geared for the mass market because um, very often I find that the, shall we say, main frequency of what it is, you know, the, the be it the mental frequency or the spiritual frequency, um, the general vibe, very often I find it not very, just not very appealing, you know, and, and nowadays increasingly just downright boring or one-dimensional. And, um, yeah, so <laughs> that's now, why I, I hardly ever listen to anything that's going on because most stuff really doesn't speak to me. Um, and that's a sad fact, but that's that's what it is, you know. So let me ask you this then. Given that, was commercial success, though, after the Scorpions ever important to you? When you're doing Electric Sun or Metamorphosis of Vivaldi's Four C, did you think this is going to be a great seller and we're going to push, you know, whatever, 50,000 copies? Or was it really like, no, I'm just going to do the music and the rest, I don't care? You know, um, it's more like the, the latter, because I, even in the Scorpions, I never understood about record sales. I never, I never really understood how the system works. I started to understand it within the last 10 years. It's not a joke, you know, because I started to reflect on certain things from different angles. Before, that was always so not interesting to me. And um, it's... I've never approached music making that way. And I don't think I could, you know. So if I wanted to sit down, oh, I want to write this hit, hit song, I, I bet you I can't because um, I don't think like that. Can I write a great melody? I think yes. I've got, I've got that talent to, to write great melodies, great harmonies. But in order to write a hit song, you have to have a great melody. You have to be willing to repeat it and, you know, to make it... Um, uh, like so that it sticks with you, you know. And I don't normally like to repeat melodies. I like it like a constant flow of melody and a different kind of shape to a, a song. In fact, I'm not even. I don't consider myself a songwriter. I've always considered myself more of a composer who thinks in terms of bigger structures. I think that's what I'm good at. I'm not so comfortable with the smaller structures, you know. Right. Like the Beatles were perfect in that. They could reel off a two-minute song or two-and-a-half-minute song, and it was just sheer perfection on every level, from yesterday to Eleanor Rigby to Here, There, and Everywhere to Michelle. They were all Paul McCartney songs. Um, these, he was just incredibly gifted in that sense, you know. But um, for me, I think my uh, strength lies, lies elsewhere. 
if I have a strength. If you have a strength, well, in fact, <laughs> let, let me let, let me mention a couple of your strengths here because I was I was on the phone with Dave Mustaine of Megadeth the other day. Oh, and, yeah. and he was like, the sales of Sharon is one of the greatest songs ever. He, in fact, even in uh, classic rock, he listed it as one of the greatest, one of the six greatest songs, blah, blah, blah. And of course, you had, uh, you wrote that. I don't even consider it a song. It is not a song. Okay. So, 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 so first of all, <laughs> talk to me about the genesis of that song and, and that, the not song song. And, it is not, okay. It's not a song. You see, yeah, I mean, yesterday is a song. The sales of Sharon is, well, I, I wouldn't consider it a song, you know, and, and that's maybe the difference. In fact, I, I think the original, um, the, the structure was flawed. It never had a proper ending, but it did have a great beginning and a great idea and, and a great general vibe, and, and it contained a lot of novel things, you know, and I think that's what made it stand out. Um, but uh, the genesis... Oh, it, it's kind of difficult because I don't actually remember writing it other than I, I do remember writing the, the guitar lead, the lyrics, and uh, the intro riff. And then everything else is just a blur. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I, which I can imagine. Um, so then let me I get do on. remember writing an orchestra score of it, um, you know, uh, in the early 2000s. And that was a lot of fun. That's when I first really got into that piece because in the beginning, I know it was like uh, you know the the one that that was most influential uh, in America um, of, of my pieces, but I never really had such a relationship with it, um, you know. But then later on, I understood why <laughs> why it had that impact. You yeah, know? and it, and it had I a was, lot. I was kind of slow to get it. Yeah, and it's just funny that a lot of the sort of heavy metal guys that I've spoken to over the years, including Kirk Hammett, including Dave Mustaine and others, they refer to that song as being one of the greatest riffs ever. And and, and it's by hmm. far not a metal song. I mean, it's it's a great... Oh, because it's got, it's got a flamenco kind of type right. uh, groove, you know, to it in, in the beginning under the guitar lead. And I think that's unusual because back then uh, none of the other players was dealing with flamenco or classical guitar, you know. And and it's just the, the one regret I have with that particular song is on the different versions of Taken by Force. Sometimes you get a five minute version. Sometimes there's a four. Like there's not. Really? Yeah. There, there, if, if depending on which copy of the album you've bought. Or on uh, what greatest hits, it's been cut up into... Di so does a four-minute version, there's a five-minute version, and it just it's it's sort of by luck, which it, it's 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 silly, but I do want to ask you about uh, the Taken by Force album in general, but there, one of your greatest songs to me is the one right after the sales, and it's Your Light. Um, mm -hmm. That one is is somewhat spiritual in, in content, right? Um, mm -hmm, yeah. If yeah, you, the, the lyrics are about Jesus. Yeah. That, right, cl clearly about Jesus. So, so talk to me about that no, song. No problem singing that, you know. But it's such a great song. I mean, when you when you come back for the uh, the tour uh, in in October, November, I'm, I'm just like, please, please, Leno, throw, throw that in there just for me. Oh boy, that's you know that's a really tricky one to play live. We've we've tried it a few times, but I was never happy. I was never happy because, you know, um, a lot of songs take some time before you find the right kind of um, 
key almost to you know to unravel it live and to to make it your own you know and with that one i never really found it live and uh it's a bit of a yeah it's a bit of a letdown actually it's it's an unfinished unfinished business so um i think about that much yeah but it really is a great song but i i I do want to I do want to ask you about sort of the the religious take going on an album like Taken by Force and the Scorpions being a hard rock band. Was there any discussion within the band or the record company like, hey, you can't have a a, a message? No, like, no, don't forget this was um, this was the seventies. Um, religious people uh, were open to discuss these things in public even nobody would in their right mind would say hey you can't have a religious opinion or whatever you know and um, so and I I was never anybody to walk around like you know try to convert people or so like one of these preachers no this was basically just uh, um, uh, basically something that that came out of me as a um, as something that that I wanted to say, and um, it fit perfectly in the Scorpions uh, realm back then. At you know at least in in the early Scorpions because we we had quite a few lyrics that were uh, spiritual. I mean, talk about Sears of Sharon. What is it actually? The Sears of Sharon is actually about somebody tampering with dark magic. It is um, it is a black magic. It is about a Darth Vader character, and it, it it was written exactly in the time when um, Star Wars came out, you know, and um, in 1977, early in 77. So I hadn't seen the movie by then, but 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 that's what it represents, you know, As somebody who gets sucked in by um, the the dark side and then doesn't find a way out. You know, until he uh, kills the emperor, I guess. <laughs> you know, and that's what that song is all about. And and most of my early Scorpions lyrics had a, a spiritual message, other than maybe Dark Lady. <laughs> you know, but songs like Sun in My Hand and uh, they 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 all had a meaning, and and to me that was important. You know, having said that, um, it was a time period in the Scorpions where. They wanted, yes, they were going after the big success. And uh, when Herman came into the band, he um, thought that that was to be seen with uh, like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll angle of lyrics, you know, like the he's a woman, she's a man kind of thing. And um, I certainly didn't agree with that, you know. And uh, although I liked him as a person, we got on great and I liked his drumming, but uh, I wasn't fond of these kind of lyrics. And uh, it was just something that I didn't want to be part of, you know. Yeah, and and, um, and so that was just an added reason for me uh, to leave the, the Scorpions. Although it was certainly not any of the major reasons, it was just one of the things that they all came together. You know, I wanted my lyrics to be more of a statement that that had like a deeper meaning, um, things that I was interested in, things that I believed in. And um, at that time, I couldn't care less about how many um, copies were sold because of that, you know. Now, and there we are again at the, the, this crossroads between what does the public want and what does the artist want to say, you know. 
And yes, nowadays, and, and in the 80s, certainly the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing was, was huge news. And a lot of people just um, thought it was so fascinating and glamorous. You know, half the televisions and the swimming pool and, uh, you know, the Keith Moon kind of stuff, which is funny. You know, I, I see the funny side of it. But it certainly doesn't represent anything that I stand for, and I've never done anything like that, and and I never will. You know, I'm, I guess I'm too boring for that. Right, and and, and I know that some of the <laughs> keep my excitement to within the confined to the guitar playing. Keep, keep it to, you know? to to sky guitars and and the shows, but. There is one Scorpion that song that after you left the band that came out that you have a, a good fondness of. Um, it is um, "Send Me an Angel," which you... yeah, I love that one. That's beautiful. Yeah, yes. and that that's got a spiritual lyric. Uh, anyway, and yeah, it's possibly I think the best song the, the Scorpions have ever written. Yeah, and I've and I've seen you sound check it. You sound checked it the last time you were here uh, in Ottawa, and yeah, we did it. Um, I think when we did an acoustic uh, uh, pre-show kind of thing, and we I think we we included it for that reason because I liked it so much. Yeah, it's it's such a sadly it doesn't have a um, a real guitar solo at the end. I um, you know when I first heard it, I thought. Bummer, you know, where's the guitar solo? And then and I, I put this to Klaus afterwards, and he said, "Well, it can't always be a guitar solo." Yep. Well, but, you, you might have to re—you might have to recut your own version and and, and add a, a smoking guitar solo at the at the well, end. If, because I things that I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't have to be smoking. It just needs to be just Perfect. right for that song, you know. Yeah. Um, another song that that uh, from the back in the day is, of course, we burn. Well, we'll burn the sky. Uh, you had Monica Deneman come in, your your wife at the time. Uh, talk to me about not what... my wife. It was my girl, girlfriend. We were sorry. actually not married. Right. Um, you know, although a lot of people thought we were, but we were not married. But, but Okay, just sorry. No, Carry no, you, you're, you're right about that. My my mistake. But um, talk to me about her involvement, because she, she did con- contribute a little bit to the Scorpions. Was that sort of a an awkward thing to sort of say to the guys, "Hey, my girlfriend's going to come in here and and or or she's going to write some songs," oh, or was no, it very no. natural? No, it was totally different, uh, Mitch. And there was nothing awkward about it. First of all, um, the Scorpions really liked her. Uh, she was uh, best friends with Klausen's wife, um, <laughs> Gabi, and um, so they they really respected her. She was a very artistic person. But um, mainly she was um, a painter, as you know. You know, she was absolutely excellent doing oil paintings, particularly portraits. But she also had um, a side, uh, a poetic side. She she was good at at writing poetry. Um, Now, um, when we did the the album, um, the Take My Force album that summer, uh, I remember Klaus, uh, who did most of the lyrics for um, the Schenker Minor songs, um, he was struggling with that one. Uh, you know, he he didn't seem to have the right idea, and we all knew it was a great song, but uh, so he asked me and said, uh, well, do you want to write the lyrics to that one, you know? And somehow... Um, I I didn't feel like doing it, although it would have probably been easy for me, but I doubt whether I would have come up with anything as good as Monica did. So I said to Monica, "Um, here, have a go. And she said, 
yep, no problem. And within no time, she had this lyric. I did contribute a couple of couple of lines in the beginning. Um, I think with the rain or sunshine. I, I don't actually remember which ones they were, but that's all. The rest was all pure Monica, and it's uh, it became absolutely one of the most memorable songs in the entire Scorpions repertoire. And also because of the lyrics, because um, if you have very strong lyrics with a very strong melody and a very strong song, it's like a double whammy and something like that's rare. You know, that song wouldn't have made it, you know, with a title like he's a woman, she's a man, (laughs) you know, so um, no, it needed something else, and and Monica nailed it. Yeah, and, yeah. and what a what a great album! It live, you know, and uh, and it's uh, every every time when we do it, it's it's kind of um, a highlight of the set, you know. Well, I'm just looking at the uh, track listing of "Taken by Force" in front of me, and, and just "Steam Rock Fever" will burn the sky. I've got to be free ride. I mean, it's just it's just great huh. song after great song after great song. born to touch your feelings is such a, a, a do we call it a ballad is it a ballad but, uh i guess so yeah that, that was I, a strong one yeah uh, you know your light the sail i mean just anyway great stuff um i know we're we're way past our time so just quickly mm-hmm. is, since the uh, triple anniversary is of course going to have highlights from tokyo tapes you did that entire tokyo tapes tour last year just a, a few words on tokyo tapes because when it came out uh, at the time, everybody, everybody was talking about how Peter Frampton's has a live album that's great, and and Cheap Tricks and Budokan is blah, blah blah. But as we've gone down the years, you know, Tokyo Tapes keeps coming back in the discussion as, hey, that's one of the greatest live albums ever. And at first, people were like, that's a great live, but now I think it's really, you know, 40 years later, people are like, no, that's what a live album's supposed to be, and uh, just. Give me a couple of words on on Tokyo Tapes and the importance of of the album in the band's uh, history. Well, um, it was literally the last shows that uh, I've ever done with the Scorpions, other than when when we came back, like uh, you know, um, in the early two thousands, and we did some reunion kind of shows. But it was. The final statement of that period, and it was uh, also designed to be that because um, when this American, this Japanese tour was booked, I didn't really want to do it at that time because I had already left the band and um, I had kind of stayed on for a long time, almost a year. So I I just wanted to move on and do my electric sun thing. But Rudolf and Klaus talked me into it over, over the phone. They said, look, um, let's do this and let's do a live album. It'll be basically our uh, closure for this entire period. And um, luckily, I I said yes. And because uh, once we were there, it was a great experience. And we were on top of our game. And I remember playing these shows uh, like with a feeling of intense inspiration night after night and two of them were were recorded and they weren't even the best ones for me the the first show we did in tokyo was superior but um that was not recorded 
So anyway, so th- that's where Tokyo Tapes came from. You yeah, know? such a great album. Just, just curious, though, if you're going there knowing that you're making a live album, or did you know you were going there making a live album? Why not record sure. every single night? That wasn't the important thing. For us, we just played Japan, you know, where that was our first ever show in Asia. Um, and so that was more exciting. The The tape was rolling. Yes, we knew that. But that was kind of more at the back of our minds, you know. Um, that became an issue afterwards, you know. Then, you know, what? Yeah, what you do with it, and is it good enough, etc. Um, but uh, at at the time, um, we were we were really just playing these shows, you know, and it and it was exciting, and um, it was a really good time, and and we were so well played in at that time the five years that we spent together so closely through thick and thin um, playing all these clubs playing all these festivals touring relentlessly and all over europe and finally paid off and and we were ready for for that you know and so um tokyo tips was kind of like the end of like it was kind of the the high end of that era, and I guess that was also the beginning of a new era, which then started without me, you know. And uh, what a, what a great, uh, as we say in French, point final on on sort of that for me. Yeah, just just such yeah, a great, right? great, great, great point final. Anyway, the uh, the tour comes back October, November in uh, North America. Very much looking forward to it. It's always just a a what's the word for it. A, just a sensational evening of of playing and singing and the Tokyo tape stuff last year and oh, if we, now if we can only get uh, send me an angel in your light <laughs> thrown oh in the boy. Oh boy! Oh no! Well, no no pressure. A, no yeah, pressure. But, um, actually, no. I'd I'd love to do your light. We uh, I, I I will really give that some consideration. And um, it just needs a new arrangement. An is just an all-time great. Track. I, I cannot see it really in that environment, but right. actually, who knows? You know, yeah. it might it might actually be a good idea. Why why not? <laughs> yeah, make, make not? a medley of both songs. Give it a new arrangement. That, but which, uh, yes, yeah, I was just gonna say, just give it give uh, you know make a medley of both songs, jam them together, make a nice no, arrangement. No, 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 no medley. <laughs> no, they are completely different. True. Tonally, it would work, but no, they would kind of play each other at least i i can see how to make that work but um yeah, yeah. also I'll, I'll give that some thought uh uli always always a great pleasure very much looking forward to the shows as i said and uh, thank you just thank you for everything okay well thanks for having me and um enjoy the well do you have good weather in canada now yes it is currently about 29 degrees celsius and hot great. and sunny <laughs> so I was so looking forward to we we were this week we were supposed to be in Canada Alberta Vancouver everywhere you know and I thought great finally I'm getting to see Canada in the summer not in February where it hurts the most yeah. it's like twenty below zero you know and frozen buses and buses stuck in in huge piles of snow. <laughs> With missed shows in Montreal. Yeah, oh, I remember that. October won't be so bad. It'll be in the 12 the rainy, to 17. Maybe. Yeah, a little rainy, but okay. it, 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 it'll be, it certainly won't be snow. 
So you'll be okay. Okay. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. Well, Thank you so much. Know yeah. what that's like. Thank you, sir. All right. Bye-bye, Mitch. Bye-bye. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Yeah. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. 